Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is a conversation I had actually at the start of the year, probably just towards the end of January. I was up in Auckland for a few weeks. I've mentioned that a couple of times on the on the podcast already, and I recorded this conversation with Eddie Rayner, the great Eddie Rayner, the keyboardist from Split Ends. Uh, he's a producer, arranger, engineer, um, session musician, but he is the keyboardist in Split Ends. He also was in Crowded House for a time. He was in Schnellfenster in the early formation of the band, not on the finished record, uh, but was in the band. Uh, he made a great solo album that I loved called Horse, and um, and of course he spearheaded the Enzo Project. So we talked about all of this stuff, but what we did was we worked through the entire history of Split Ends. We talked from... Well, Eddie was in Space Waltz before joining Splendid, so we talk about that and his early musical uh, upbringing and his, his his time in life getting into music, and then we talk through the Splendid story. Um, he was a great host. I went to his house in Auckland, and we we recorded this conversation in two parts. We we spoke right up to the. Uh, well, I guess the early split ends period, right around until Phil Judd left the band, the, the early to mid 70s. And then we took a break and went upstairs and had a cup of tea and had a chat off tape about all sorts of things. Uh, I got to see some of the amazing memorabilia in his house. He has a photograph in his lounge of him standing in the middle of Paul McCartney and Phil Collins. They were all on an album together. They were on a Paul McCartney record called Press to Play. So you'll hear a little bit of that record in this conversation and you'll hear us talking about that. So Eddie's done some pretty amazing things, but his knowledge of the Split Ends days is, it's wonderful to uh, to hear this. I love listening back to this conversation. I loved having this conversation. and. Um, he hints at a project, you'll hear him hint at a project that he told me a little bit more about off tape, um, but in the recording he hints at a project, he's doing some recordings at the moment with Tim Finn and Noel Crombie, so we look forward to, to that one day uh, um, coming out. He also talks about a new Space Waltz record some 45 years after the first one, so that's apparently in the can and, and looking to be released. So there's a few little little nuggets in this conversation that you'll hear, and then just these wonderful stories about, you know, you guys know from some of my other podcasts how hooked I am on the band Split Ends and how I'm currently working on a, a, a project around a book with Phil Judd. So this conversation was going to happen anyway, but obviously uh, there are little parts of it that are, that are useful to me in my project there. Um, but, uh, you know, a wonderful conversation to have had with, uh, with Eddie Rayner, one of New Zealand's finest musicians in one of New Zealand's finest bands and a great scholar and a gent. It was my, my thrill to spend the day with him at his house in Auckland earlier this year. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is me speaking with Eddie Rayner. We've only just met, but I've listened to your music my entire life and you would have a lot of people say that to you and you'd meet people that would gush over the things you've done, but we're going to do plenty of that, but I want to get a sense of, um, I guess, I guess how it started for you and, and I mean you were born in Wellington, is that right, but you basically... Born in, yeah, born in Lower Heart. Yeah. Uh, Dad was a really good piano player, mm. my mum was a really good singer, but that's the only, you know, that's as far back as I can trace the music. Oh, actually, yeah. no, I can trace it a little bit further back. Just come to light recently. Yeah. Apparently, one of my ancestors um, uh, was a, a pastor on one of the um, original uh, boats that came here in the 1850s, I think it was, mm. one of the big old um, steamers that came over. And he brought the first organ into the country, which he 
assembled here. Wow. Yeah, okay. Kit said organ, and he, he assembled it and played it up at the um, Pitts, uh, Pitt Street Church yeah, in, yeah. in Auckland here somewhere. So there's a little bit of history there, but um, no, I never thought of, I, I never was interested in music at all, apart from the fact that I was very um, envious of my dad's talent mm. as a piano player. He's one of mm. those piano players who, he was. He loved Russ Conway and he loved right, yeah, yeah. Winifred Atwell. Yeah. Um, the old stride style, yeah. you know. Yeah. Both hands doing different things. Yeah, and it sounds like yeah. a couple of people yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was brilliant at it. And, um, but he would never play in front of anybody. He, he just played in a room with the door closed. Mm. And so I always used to listen to my dad from behind the door. And um, it wasn't till the end of high school at the end of college, I was at um, Paparanga College. Mm. I spent a year at Sacred Heart where I got to know Tim and I got to know Mike Chan um, and Wally Wilkinson. Um, but there was no musical tie up there. Mm. And even though I was aware of the fact that Tim was a, was a really good singer because I heard him sing it at the school. Ball. Right, right. He sang with the Gremlins. Anyway, um, uh, so there was no real history in terms of me, you know, um, my, my pathway through life being a musical one. Mm. And it wasn't until I was um, let go, should I say, from Pekarika College. <laughs> I was expelled for having my hair over my collar. <laughs> I didn't want to get it cut. It was yeah. just a little bit over my collar, but the headmaster said I had to uh, either get it cut or I had to leave which was the first time a prefect had ever been <laughs> expelled, apparently. So um, a friend who was at school, a guy called Steve Hughes, he was expelled at the same time, and he said, um, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. Um, and he said, well, let's join, let's make a band. Let's, let's form a band. Mm. I said, well, I don't know how to play um, anything. But I kind, I kind of did, uh, because I'd had lessons when I was about eight, mm. maybe nine months or something, or a year maybe, mm. I can't remember, it wasn't very long. And I did know what the notes were on, on a piano keyboard, um, but I didn't know anything about chords and I couldn't read properly, you mm. know, sight mm. read or anything like that. Um, he said, that, that's all right. So we just whizzed into town, we whizzed into a, um, caught the bus into town and got a, uh, a Vox organ. I bought the Vox organ because the guy from uh, what's the, who was the guy from the Animals, the keyboard player. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Alan. Is it Alan Price? Alan Price. Yeah. Alan Price had one, and I I thought he was an amazing. You know, House of the Rising Sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, that was the first song I learned on it, and um, and yeah, picked up the, uh, the Vox organ and put it on higher purchase. Cost two hundred dollars. Didn't work properly, but didn't matter. We got a residency, we formed the band, we got a residency out on Waiheke at the Oniroa Hall. Wow. Uh, a couple of months later and... Um, it would have been pretty rustic then. Very, very rustic <laughs> and rusty. The whole yeah, hall was yeah. made out of corrugated iron then. <laughs> don't know whether it still is, it probably is. Um, but we just played, um, I think it was four nights a week out at Waiheke. And so I sort of cut my teeth out there, sort of wow. like... What it and it would have like. been a couple of hours travel. No, we stayed out there. Oh, you would, yeah, right. Yeah, we stayed yeah, out there. We had a, we had a, to go out there, it would have been a, probably a 90-minute to oh, hour journey. from Howard. Yeah. I can't remember, but, yeah. but it was probably a paddle steamer in those days. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's where it kind of um, kind of started. Mm. 
and but I was still kind of um, not that happy with uh, either my own abilities, my own knowledge, or the sounds I was getting from the from the Vox organ. I didn't like the sound of the organ. Um, I found the volume. I found the volume of the band too loud. I just, so all in all, I wasn't that keen on being a musician. Mm. Um, Which seems crazy because you know my whole um, connection with the music that you've made and been involved with, and just thinking about. And I've heard people say this, but you strike me as the consummate musician, and you know possibly some sort of you know child prodigy. And you're telling me that none of that's <laughs> no there in the early days. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think going back to the lessons when I was eight or nine. Um, the teacher thought I was pretty good. Mm. The teacher thought I was a really good. So there, I mean, there's something in the genes. There was something right. there. My, like, my, yeah. my fingers have always been nimble. Yeah, I've always been able to move my fingers fast. Yeah, and sort of. Is that, that mental imaging of watching your dad play? Yeah, possibly. Some of that yeah. As well, like, yeah, right? there was all so, of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose being a being a an accomplished um, piano player uh, was um, something that further on down the track that I kind of aspired to because yeah. um, I sort of thought once I made the leap um, of committing to being a musician that mm. I thought Shit, if I'm going to get any good at this if I'm going to be successful at this I have to become a very good piano player mm. I have to learn my stuff I have to learn my scales I have to you know get my fingers working really well I have to learn as much as I can and, and get as much um, uh, influence you know uh, sort of listen to a lot of stuff mm. and um, a lot of things happened contemporaneously you know I, I never got jazz never understood jazz still don't um, I appreciate it I just don't understand it mm. um, you know in terms technically I mean so I'm not a jazz player um, a jazz musician uh, at all but um, what happened down the track was that as I slowly committed to being a musician over the next couple of years, probably up until I was about, uh, I suppose, 19 or 20, um, I started listening to things. I started meeting other people who would expose me to bands, uh, you know, um, like Genesis and, mm. and Roxy Music and Yes. Mm. And I sort of thought at that point that I had to aspire to being as good a player as Keith Emerson or, Keith, or Rick Wakeman or... And if you weren't Tony Banks, you and know. if you weren't like if a person wasn't, especially then I think if a person wasn't um, really on the jazz tip, then that British prog music was kind of the go-to. That's exactly right. Because you get you got an understanding even just as a listener that this was technically yeah brilliant yeah technically and brilliant so something to aspire to. That's yeah. exactly right. And yeah. I, and I I suppose um, just from a heritage point of view in the genes genetically mm. Mm. I'm more predisposed towards English. Um, harmony and mm -hmm. melodies and things um, that were European, should I say? Yeah, yeah. Than what I am to um, you know black music or American yeah. uh, stuff. Um, even though the, you know blues are kind of easy to play. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, the jazz thing just never really took my took my fancy, and uh, I just I, I loved um, the harmony and melody of, of the of European mm. musicians, you know. And so I thought that. I have to get better. I have. I've got to really um, study and uh, practice 
practiced really hard. So that's what I did. Mm. I practiced. I um, I listened a hell of a lot, and I copied a lot of, um, you know, uh, those sort of prog musicians. Mm-mm. Copied their style. So what I mean, what you're saying is you uh, you kind of got good quick. Yeah, I did. Yeah, once, I, once I you managed got rolling, it, because you know yeah. it's like when you do something that you feel like you're almost um, that's in you. Mm. It's part of your fabric, you know. Um, it, it comes, it does come really quickly. So, are you working outside of playing at this point? Yeah, you, you've got a trade, or you're thinking about a trade or a job. Or no, n- um, well, when I left school, um, at the same time as I formed the first uh, yeah. band, um, I had a job at the Herald. I was really good at filling out forms, and so I became the form filler. I became the, the job guy, uh, the clerk guy, yeah. and filing yeah. and everything. It was, it was pretty horrific, but I had a myriad of jobs after that, you know, um, factories and market gardens mm. and abattoirs and all stuff just to keep, um, to be able to pay the bills. Um, but it's, at the same time, I was learning how to play the piano. I bought myself a very, very cheap piano and um, just learned how learned scales and did the whole did the whole thing. Mm. And um, at one point I hopped in my car. I wasn't in a band at that point. Drove with my girlfriend down to Christchurch and got a job in a market garden down there and spent about I think it was about nine months and I really, really concentrated on um, on my piano playing. Mm. To a point where I felt confident, and then I saw an ad at the end of that year. I saw an ad in the paper down there. I think it was in the press. Um, there was a band called Mammal. You remember Mammal? Yeah, yeah. With yeah, singer um, Rick Bryant. Rick Bryant. Yeah. Sorry, a lot of things <laughs> escape me these days. <laughs> slip out somewhere. Rick Bryant, and um, I hopped on my motorbike and and uh, I applied for the job, and they said come up for a come up for a um, an audition, and all I can remember is riding my motorbike up to Wellington, arriving at Tinakuri Road, mm. in this huge double-story villa, and they had a little studio, or a studio of sorts underneath the house, and then passing me a joint. And of course, I'd never had drugs in my life, mm. and I was only about, I was probably about 18, I suppose, I mean, maybe 19 at that point. I just never had drugs. I didn't. You know, I never smoked mm, mm. cigarettes or anything. And um, I had, of course, I had to. I just sort yeah. of felt like otherwise I was sort of. You failed the audition. I had failed it before I even <laughs> yeah, started. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a had a joint, and the la- the next thing I remember is waking up in Rotorua. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I'd ridden my motorbike. I mean, I. It's completely out of it, and I woke up in a motel in Rotorua, and and I can remember getting to Wellington and having this thing, and then that was there was this massive gap of a day. <laughs> so I don't. And Rick Bryant tells the story. Mm. Yeah, he relates the story, but uh, he thinks that he thought it was hilarious <laughs> that I never did the audition. I just I think I just flaked. I think I think I fainted and just fell on the floor, and that was the end of it. <laughs> Revived in Rotorua yeah, a day yeah, later. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what's the what, what's the you know when do you sort of what's the next significant well, okay. step? I well, guess. Well, then I came after that after the mm. Rotorua motel. Yeah. Yeah. Arrived back in Auckland. I decided to come back to Auckland. Yeah. And 
sort of try and get a job in a band and that's where I got the break in Roger Skinner and the motivation yeah. that Paul Crowther met him and then kind of rest is sort of history um, so this is like the very late 60s early 70s this would have, no this would have been about 70 70 71 yeah um, shortly after the motivation um, which which was fun but it, it wasn't what I wanted to do I, it wasn't actually that fun it didn't really feel like yeah. that was where I wanted to, to, to be right. in the long term um, met up with um, Alistair Riddell mm. and Alistair Riddell um, Paul Crowther and I and another I think, did we have Wally Wilkinson on bass or another guy I think it was Wally on bass at that point um, I'd, I'd known Wally from Sacred Heart right yeah yeah we missed out the whole Sacred Heart yeah thing. but anyway that, that's sort of bubbling on the background this yeah. Tim and Phil and and uh, Tim, Phil, who else? Mike Chan, Jeff Chan, a flautist and a violinist, Miles Golding. Miles Golding, yeah. They're all sort of over there somewhere yeah. doing their thing, yeah. being a sort of an acoustic folk band in a way and, yeah. and um, you know, learning about writing songs together. And uh, So they're doing that over here. I'm over here with Paul Crowther, Alistair Adele, Wally Wilkinson, and we're doing prog rock and and some originals. Yeah. So we were playing some Yes songs. We were playing um, David Bowie stuff. Uh, I, I remember yeah. Alistair. Alistair almost bought Glam to New Zealand in he, a way, didn't he? Did, like, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. God, if you look it out on the street yeah. now, it's, it's yes. hilarious. Yeah. But, man, it's, it's extreme. No, no, it's significant. It's extreme. Yeah. Um, yeah. Camp. Yeah. Glam rock. And uh, anyway, um, it's kind of ultimate tribute stuff. It it's is its own song, but it's yes. like the ultimate tribute to an era and a style. That's another story I've got. For yeah, you, isn't it, yeah, actually, yeah. But anyway, um, so we're doing that, and we also um, contemporary, contemporaneously we have another band because we realise um, that doing originals or playing mm. David Bowie songs or Yes songs to the general populace of New Zealand it's not going to happen you yeah because playing playing that prog stuff and glam stuff Bowie and so forth that's almost like playing originals it, it is and nobody heard of people it people don't know it right no, like that's right. Nobody a small did. gang that's in yeah because so you might have heard what's on yeah, the radio yeah yeah, yeah. and, and what was on the radio top, was Ty Casey, Casey, and <laughs> Casey Casey's yeah. Top 40 yeah um, there's that sort of thing yeah. and, and so you know you die a death on the road so we at the same time, we started another band called Stuart and the Belmonts. Yeah. Which was kind of a play on the words. The guy Stuart um, was uh, the head of the drug squad, I believe, here. And, and the, the cars they drove were Belmonts. Right. Holden Belmonts, <laughs> yeah. so we called, called it Stuart and the Belmonts. And we got a residency in Kawarau and then a residency in Tokoroa. Was it Tokoroa? Um, and. Uh, that lasted for a while, but lasted for maybe six months or something. Mm. And it basically enabled us to be able to pay our bills, you know. Um, but it was, back in those days, you you would have a, a gig, say, at the Cowrow Tavern. And you'd be um, doing your show, uh, you'd, be, you'd be playing your, your gig, and next minute, some bloke would walk up with a roll of paper out of the audience and he'd, say, he'd go oh here you go bro here's your chuts 
And I go, I go, Alistair, what's going on? And Alistair would say, I don't know. He says, I'm the floor show. <laughs> My name's Inari. I'm the floor show. I, I go, but we, we don't know. We, didn't, we, don't, we don't know anything about this. Oh, well, you'll be right. Just play, um, you know, Girl from Bipanema? Yeah. Because <laughs> back in those days, they were... Um, there were floor shows. Yeah. You'd have your, yeah. your resident band and then the floor show, yeah. which was the featured artist yeah, of the night. Yeah. But we didn't know. We just had no idea. I mean, that happened the first <laughs> night at the Gowrout Tavern. And, of course, none of us could read. <laughs> which was a real problem. It's the old joke, isn't it? How do you get a guitar player to turn down? Yeah. Put music in front of them. <laughs> uh, but... Um, yeah, so that was a bit of a disaster in the end. We ended up by getting booted off that particular circuit. Um, and Brent Eccles always vowed to get back at the guy Del Gleish. He, he ran, <laughs> he ran the breweries, yeah. uh, the, or the this hiring of the bands yeah, for yeah. the circuit. And we got fired. And Eccles was always going to going to get take his revenge in one way or another. I don't know if he ever did, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. So that was that band and. You know, and then during the week we'd do a couple of practices learning the prog rock or, or, or doing originals, mm, um, mm. mostly Alistair's originals and um, uh, jamming, you know, just mm. jam, jamming them up. And then we did the, um, uh, what's it called? Stu- was it uh, New Faces? Yeah. There was one called Studio 8 or something, or Studio, I can't remember what it was, but there were two... TV um, talent quest things going on and my, my mind's really hazy about which one was which because um, Space Walls we became Space Walls well, we, actually we started off as Orb as the three piece band and yep. then we morphed into Space Walls and when we did Out on the Street you know and um, the song Out on the Street and that song became a massive number one hit here for several months I think I think yeah. it was number one for ages because of the TD exposure every week it was being advertised as a finalist you know mm. so it was the chorus was a very a very catchy chorus and just the way that Alistair looked was quite appealing to a lot of people or at least it was not necessarily appealing but it was um, Interesting. gossip worthy yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah what about that geezer on the telly oh god you know yeah <laughs> but anyway um so we were able to do an album um, down at uh, EMI in, in, in Wellington. We drove ourselves down in Alistair's combi and um, made the album in a couple, I think it was only a few days. Mm. That's where I first met Sam Neill, actually. I stayed next door to Sam Neill and we went out fishing. And, um, but anyway... Um, so what you're describing is split ends with the S at the end of the very folk jug band kind of thing has already kind of got yeah, they're, going. they're kind of going over there, and they went on the same the, it, on the yeah, same, same jug show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're starting to turn heads because because there isn't a band like them. No, but and then um, I can just remember I was living in Howick at the at the time with my with my parents and uh, or my mum had died by then, but um, uh, I was living with my dad and I was watching the actual. New Faces show on telly and then I saw Split Ends and I thought, oh my god, I love this sound, I love this song. Yeah. It was a song called 129, yeah. or Matinee, Matinee Idol, and I think at that point it was called 129. 129 was, I think, the address of the rehearsal room where we used to play at 
Chan's place in Parnell Road. But anyway, it's called 129. And I just loved the sound of it. I loved the arrangements and the strings and, and uh, just the chord structure. There was nothing conventional about it whatsoever. And Tim's voice was just so appealing, you know, to me. I just love the sound of his voice. And, and the melody, it was just, uh, it was like nothing I'd heard before, really. And then there was another song um, that they did later on in the series called uh, Sweet Talking Spoon Song, mm -hmm. which I also loved as well. I just loved the sound. And even to this day, the sound of those two particular songs is, is unreal. It's, um, I can't get... I can't get that sound when I'm mixing these days, and I spend all my time mixing. Mm. But the sound of it is such. It was done at Stebbings in um, in uh, Hearn Bay, yep, Ponsonby. And I guess it was all done to tape, and it was all analog, and it was all played, and it was arranged well. And the band was great. Jeff Chun was the drummer at that point. That's right. Yeah. And um, he was a great drummer. He really was. And both of those songs today stand up for me as probably the best recordings that Smithy Ian's ever did. Why did he leave so early? Like he wasn't in the band for... That's a good question. You he, know? he jumped ship. Yeah, that's what I thought. He jumped he, ship. Now, he, I can't remember exactly why, to be honest. Did he want to play more conventional music or something? I like, can't look, to be honest. Yeah. I don't know why he left. I yeah. had the feeling it was something that he wasn't happy about. Yeah. Something that maybe it could have been about writing. He might have been wanted to be a singer, perhaps. Maybe he didn't want yeah. to play drums. Oh, he might have wanted to play drums and be up, uh, play, play guitar and be up the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could have been it. Yeah, but I'm yeah. not entirely sure. Yeah. yeah. I think that I think that runs better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Mike Chumble. Yeah, he's, he certainly. <laughs> would. I think it would be because he wants to want to be a wanted, singer yeah, and, yeah. and to play guitar. I yeah. Think. So that's when Paul comes in. And when do you officially join? I joined in March 73, yeah. or February 73. Yeah, and because uh, what you were setting up basically is, is basically several members of the Orb slash Space Walls morph into split ends. Um, well, actually... You, you and Paul, Yeah, Wally. I mean, what actually happened was that Space Wolves were number one. Mm. Space Wolves had a huge profile mm. in New Zealand at that particular point, at the point that I was asked to join split ends. They asked me to join as the keyboard player. Yeah. Tim was Tim was the keyboard player at that point. Yeah. Um, he had a Fender Rhodes, and um, I think they bought a Mellotron at that point as well. And he was he's a pretty good piano player too. Yeah. But he wanted to be a, but wanted, front he man. wanted to be the front person. <laughs> yeah. And so they needed a keyboard player, and so I, I you know they asked me, and um, yeah, I couldn't turn it down. So yeah. uh, you know, it was one of those things I had to make the choice and I didn't want to leave Space Wolves. I love playing with Alistair. Yeah. You know, he's an, he's a he's a dear friend, he still is. And um and I like his writing, he's a great writer. In fact, yeah. this is another little story I'll tell you, just while we're here. Mm. We've just finished oh no we haven't quite finished it, a new a new Space Wolves album. Oh fantastic. And the interesting thing about it is that it's 45 years after the first it's a it's yeah. 45 year follow-up yeah long delayed sequel and it's that has to be by by a long chalk a world record yeah yeah because it's I'm the so same so. band yeah it's the original band wow five people in the band and it's our second album 45 years later and i've i've done um i've done out on the street we've we've remade out on the street we've remade about three or four others from the first album mm. and then we've 
um, and then we've put a bunch of new ones on as well. I mean, that first album is just magical. Like that whole first Space Balls album oh, is it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's unusual. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you can really. I mean, it's just the life in it. You know, it's yeah. kids. It, yeah. it's a kids thing. You know. And but what, in some ways it's not I mean it's different but in some ways it's not unlike that mercurial feeling you get listening to mental notes now yeah well I haven't listened to it for so long to be honest but um, I haven't listened to mental notes for so long yeah, but, yeah. Um, but for me it's, it, it is synonymous with youth though yes. it's just sort of that, that sort of energy and enthusiasm and, you know it's also in the context of New Zealand I think young musicians discovering things from board and bringing it to New Zealand yeah. you know it's like oh, totally. it wasn't a case of everything had been done at that point it was like not, not much had been done not much had been done <laughs> yeah. at all and yeah. none of us knew anything about the recording process mm. that was all left to the mm. engineer and the producer if we had if you're lucky enough to have, have one mm. and um, for me and I, it was probably different for all of us you know if you ask Noel the same question or ask Tim the same question um it would have been probably a different, um, a different feeling, or, or a, you know, you're, you're getting, you've got different motivations. You've yeah. Got, you've got different um, kind of uh, ways of reacting to the context that you find yourself in. You know, in, in a band kind of thing when you're young. Yeah. Um, for me, I, for me, I just always loved the music because that was the first thing that that appealed to me when I first heard those first couple of songs mm. and then meeting Phil and having Tim's voice there and having the bonus of Noel Crombie and Robert Gillies in the band um, man what a um, what an amazing kind of combination of minds and mm. creative spirits you know yeah how did you I mean navigate going into that like, well I was like for me I was uh, a fish out of water yeah because I was just a boy from Howick yeah you know and in our family we didn't talk about things like art or um, creativity well I was going to say it's out there as some of the playing you might have been doing up to that point it's still kind of pretty straight in a way mm. like mm. You know, yeah. psychedelic or up, up progressive. Then, you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, mine was more. Uh, I was more. Um, still up to that point, up until like the day I joined the yeah. ends. Yeah. I'd been about perfecting my technique yes. as a keyboard player, yeah. believing that that's what I needed to do, and I it was probably a great grounding. You know, mm. it's what I needed to do in order to once I went overseas to actually compete with the best. You know, mm. and um, then. In the context of split ends, it was like um, they were impressed with my technique. Mm. I can remember Phil being impressed. Oh, they, I think they probably all were of how I could play. You know, the, well, de the dexterity I had on, yes. my, on my instrument because yeah. they didn't. No, I was going to say it's such a hodgepodge of um, s levels of style and yes. technique in that band. Because yeah. obviously, when Paul joins, he's a he's a a quite a technical drummer. Yes, very much so. And, but Phil is one of the sort of great, self-taught, completely untechnical guitar players. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, there were, I mean, without wanting to, um, you know, bash any of them, uh, they were at, you know, at all different levels of yeah. accomplishment. 
and somehow it, it all worked because we all felt like we were on a mission at that point. We got together and we knew that there was something going on. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I knew there was something going on from the first time I heard them, you know. Um, but but actually, pr- just um, prior to hearing those the songs that mm. I'd spoken about, um, they'd done two more singles, I think, one called For You and the other one called Split Ends. Mm. Neither of which I liked. Right. Yeah, both of them had a flute and yeah. they were very acoustic. There was no electric guitar. They were more like um, like an, a, a folk ensemble and they had a, a flute and a violin. And to me, I just didn't like the sound. But as soon as they sort of went electric and got a bit more, just got a wee bit more rocky, I suppose, or a little bit more, it was still, still quite vaudeville, mm. the sound. Um, but there was more of a, I mean, they had drums and bass and guitar at that point, you know, and so it was a bit more sort of like, um, just a bit more rocky, I guess, a bit more, a bit stronger, mm. stronger sounding. Mm. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, when does, I guess, when does Mental Notes come into the picture after you've joined? Like, are some of those songs are starting to exist? Yeah, well, we just rehearsed, I think we rehearsed twice a week. Um, and we were working as well. Um, I think most of us at one point had a had a job, had a job. at Herd's yeah. Herd's Log yeah. Factory That's in right. Parnell, just yeah. down the road. And we were living together. I was living with Robert, Robert and his and his girlfriend Geraldine, and Mike Chan and I in in, uh, in town. Mm. And I left home at obviously left home at that point. Um, Yeah, where does mental notes come in? I guess over that period we were, from when I joined the band, it was just rehearsal, full on rehearsal. Yeah. And then there was the promise, oh, this is going a long way back, it's hard for me to remember everything, but there was this sort of um, carrot being dangled in front of the band by Barry Coburn, who was somehow became the band's manager. I guess it was something to do with the, the, uh, the, the TV show. You might have approached them mm. then, I don't know, I wasn't mm. part of that. But, um, uh, he said that Warners in Australia were really, really keen to sign and we were going to be signing a contract very soon. And when we were, Tim and I were working down at Hertz Molly um, Factory, and um, every day at lunchtime, Tim would go upstairs, because no such thing as mobile phones in those days, go upstairs to the phone, ask if he could use the phone in the office and ring Barry Coburn mm. to find out if, if the contract had arrived yet. But of course, there was never any contract. Mm. For some, for whatever reason, and for most of that year, we were just um, living in hope that we were about to leave New Zealand and go and and go and play in Australia, become mm. a, you know, a, a, a thing in Australia, because we sort of knew uh, it became pretty apparent very early on that Split Ends um, had a very limited life shelf life in New Zealand because. We made it difficult for ourselves in that we didn't want to play pubs, we didn't want to play clubs, we just mm. wanted to play theatres. Shows. We wanted to proper, play shows. Yeah, we putting were doing, on a show. Yeah, we were doing the buckerheads, you yeah, know, the yeah. radio hierarchy buckerheads. Yeah. We were playing in theatres yes. and we, we made it hard for ourselves in other ways, like we had to have real pianos on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big uprights or grand pianos. And yeah. We had a massive keyboard set up and so, you know, it was a big, undertake, a big undertaking that... The other way we made it hard for ourselves was in the in the actual staging of the show. Yeah, we yeah. Always had we always had themes and looks, costumes, and costumes, and yeah. 
often the stage the, the concert would be in two halves and the whole theatrical thing going on extras and yeah. and and little things happening all, all the time um, on stage it's a shame you didn't see one of those early ones because yeah. they were over the top I mean in terms of the actual there is an, uh, a, 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 a nice amount of footage of them around is there? Yeah, I don't some, think I've ever seen there's any. some things on YouTube that pop up oh, and really? it's, yeah I've never I mean, seen all them. the TV specials are on all oh, the things like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah new faces those sorts of things oh, okay. and, the, and yeah the British ones yeah. and there is some you know and, and then later on Ambassador and so forth like right. there is a surprising amount of yeah Split Ends has this um, you know cult like level of fans in America and they yes. tend to find yes find the things yeah. and put them up is what I've noticed yes yeah well um yeah, but when we left, when we were um, between when I joined and we left, which mm. was probably a year later, almost to the day, mm. and we went to Australia. Uh, and the, how that came about was Barry Coburn. I think he became a bit browbeaten by us saying, "Well, how come we, you know, with contract, you know, we're supposed to have been there by now?" Yeah, and he basically put us on a plane and sent us over at his expense. And um, a band called Hush came to New Zealand it was some kind of exchange thing I don't know yeah but we got to use their truck and their roadies in Sydney yeah and they were supposed to come to New Zealand and use our truck and our roadies but what they didn't realize was we didn't have a truck or any roadies <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how that all panned out but we arrived in Sydney and man um, it was that was the, that was a trial by fire that was playing in front of because uh, those were the days when um, it was the era of the teeny bopper yes and bands like Sherbet and, and Skyhooks mm. um, ruled the day over there and, and you know they were huge they were playing they, they were playing multiple shows at the big um, at the big uh, pavilions like mm, the Horton mm. Pavilion and um, festival halls and stuff they they were just huge mm. um, and of course Countdown was really important over the, the show yeah. the music, music show Countdown with Molly Melton Molly, and that yeah. was huge and um, those bands were just so massive and of course we went over there and somehow we managed to um, score a couple of uh, support support acts you know New Zealand's raunchiest rock band, Split that's Ends. Right. Yeah. That's, that's how we were billed on yeah. one of the posters, New yeah. Zealand's raunchiest rock band. Like, I don't think so. Anyway, we were booed off stage, totally booed off stage, I remember it vividly. Um, What's that like? What's that like in uh, that moment? It was sort of like, it just became one of those things, you just sort of realise that you sort of have to leave the stage because it's... And you so you just walk off and you go, you and you just, go <laughs> yeah. you just get off and go, oh, fuck them. Yeah. Fuck you. What, what was that about? Oh, they just hated us. Oh, well, fuck them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Well, it strikes me that, I mean, I've talked to Phil and Tim before, and it strikes me that there was um, quite a, a belief in what you were doing from the earliest days. Oh, totally. Like, Our belief and my belief. Yeah. Um, my belief would have been as strong, if not stronger, than anybody else's. Yes. I, I felt like I was on a complete mission um, with the band, mm. and um, that's what I'm saying. I think we all had different motivations. I yes. think that without Tim there, the band would have gone nowhere because Tim was determined to get us places, and he understood things like um, 
the importance of singles, the importance of promotion, the importance of interviews, mm. the importance of letting people know. Whereas me, um, I was all about the importance of getting the music right and thinking, well, naive enough to think that if you got the music right and the songs right, yeah. then, the, then the people would come to you mm. rather than having to go to them and, and, and do promotion and things. It's, I never did interviews and I couldn't stand doing interviews. I didn't see the point of them. Mm. Because mm. I thought the music would do it, but yeah. because I was a bit stupid, because that's not the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good focus to have then, because it's you know it's it's foundation for yeah, and you're I'm, all in your own little ways. You're laying the foundation for, I guess, part. Of, you know, there are twists and turns and lineup changes in the split end story, but it is that foundation of doing hard work and a self belief as well as something unique that creates the platform for longevity for the band ultimately doesn't it yeah that's right and when you've got that sort of belief you just you know the things you do you, mm. you know driving from um, um, Darwin to Adelaide overnight <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and playing in Adelaide the following night you mm. know mm. It's, and that's what we did we used to do things like that um, just because we love playing we love being in a band we love love playing those songs and over there as well you always sensed um, no matter where where we went no matter which gig we played we sensed like they there was people waiting there was yeah. excitement um, where we were going it felt like something was happening something was growing and you know because of the work we're doing but also just through word of mouth yeah you know, people talking about split ends um, yeah I was gonna say when do you get like I guess even a little bit more than an inkling that you're actually really making a dent. When do you sort of, you know? Um, like well, it's when you start. It's when you go to a gig, uh, like there's a place called Countdown in um, Adelaide, and you go and you play there the first time, and you play to 30 people who just happen to be there. Yeah. And and then the next time you go, it's sold out. Yeah. It's absolutely sold out yeah. because of word of mouth. Yeah, and we found that because we were just doing the East Coast continuously, you know, mm. um, up and down, up and down. I mean, we only did it for a year, really, when we mm. first went. It was, it, it all happened quite um, regularly. Um, mm. It was seventy. So I think early seventy. I joined in March seventy three. March seventy four, we went over. March seventy to Australia. Yeah. March seventy five, we were gone to yeah. England. Yeah. Um, so in that year. We built the band's profile immensely, you know. And, record, and recorded an album. We recorded one album, yep. and then that album, I mean, it didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was just the the way that, you know, the, the way the band was, the style of the band, the look of the band, the image, the, uh, the and the music that gave us a kind of, a, a, a started off with a cult following, and then just once we had our first single, you know, the first one, um, the first single was, um, well, I think it was late last night actually, but that didn't get much attention because it mm. wasn't radio friendly or anything. Um, we had a song called Maybe, yeah. which came out and that got a little bit more attention. I think we even played that on Countdown. I think it went out and, and they had us on Countdown. So um, of course it's got one of those choruses uh, which goes da 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 the timing's all over the place it's yeah, got a 3-8 yeah, bar, yeah. bar in the middle yeah. of it and um, so it's one of those songs you don't release that as a single yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so but it was probably you know that particular song got us a little bit of attention and then um, we were able to 
convinced that by then we'd been signed to Mushroom. And that was another story because I did one interview when we arrived. I, I did it with, uh, Rolling, with Rolling Stone or Duke. One of, I think it was Rolling Stone, it was. I did an interview with Rolling Stone in which I rubbished Skyhawks. And Skyhawks were just huge. Yeah. And so Red Simons, who became a yes. pretty close friend later on for me, yeah. years later, um, he... Um, he brought Gadinsky along just to have a look at these upstarts from New Zealand right. to see what yeah, yeah. down at the Coogee Bay Hotel where we were playing yeah. to see what we were like and he signed us up right there and then Gadinsky yeah. signed us up and um, that was probably a few months after we arrived in Australia and then by the following March he had agreed to send us over to oh, well he put us on all sorts of uh, before we went to England he put us on all sorts of uh, support tours with who did we do? Roxy Music, uh, Leo Sayer, um, Turtles. Um, who else did we do? Uh, Frank Zappa. Wow. Yeah, we did lots and lots of support tours. Gadinsky uh, was great um, for doing that for us. Were you, helped, that, that helped us out no end. Were you impressed with things like Zappa's band? Or not, not really? really? I, look, I was, At that time. You know what? I was totally into what we were doing yeah. and anything that wasn't akin to what we did or very similar to it I, I just, just felt it I didn't out. rate it I didn't yeah. rate it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's true yeah it's funny yeah I was totally one-eyed about the sort of music because we were we became our own culture you see mm. Splitians became its own culture we were quite um, elitist I thought mm. you know not in a bad way in particular but it sort of enabled us to be who we were with mm. impunity you know mm. like we would actually wear those costumes sometimes, uh, and, and the haircuts were, I mean, they were obviously permanent. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you had a haircut, it was a haircut, so you had to go out during the day with it. Mm. And I had this basin cut, which is probably pretty much par for the course these days, but I had this little top knot on top, <laughs> like a like fryer tuck. Yeah. And it looked ridiculous. Yeah. You know, and Noel used to do all those cuts. We used mm. to call them the Pycock Butcher. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it was like, I'll never forget, he'd say, um, he'd say, Ed, uh, I think it's time for a haircut. <laughs> well, <how laughs> and crucial. he'd get this little grin, and I'd think, oh, no. What are you going to do to me? Oh, that's right. How crucial was Noel to, I mean, obviously, all, we were saying all these different components of the band are what makes the band, and I think with Split Ends, never a truer case. But how crucial was Noel to the, I guess, the sensibility of the band? I mean, he's designing outfits, he's giving you haircuts, he's a performer, quite a ridiculous performer in the best possible yeah, way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in some ways his story has been slightly discounted in the history of Splitting. Look, look you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that a lot of people, I mean, there's the old Noel is God thing, you know, yeah. used to go to gigs and there pe people holding up yeah. signs saying, people love Noel. In fact, one of the things that I, it's it sort of frust frustrated me over the yeah. years because I've done um, some Enzo yeah. shows, orchestral things, and I've done also done a very small Enzo as well. Mm. Um, but I always incorporate the spoons. Yeah. And I just can't believe how people, you'll do a whole show. Yeah. And people can only talk about the spoons, the spoon solo, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you realise that, oh, it doesn't worry me, it, yeah. it, it really connects, because I guess it's, it's so it's it's party so simple. writ large, it's, isn't it? It really is, and it's just one of those things that people think, oh, I could do that, I yeah. can play spoons. 
And they give it a go. They, they give it a go. Fall out of their hands. Yeah, it's they a bit like it, juggling. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Playing spoons well. Yeah. And but to look good, to look cool when you're playing yeah. spoons is another thing. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I've just noticed recently too, I've just told you before about all these um, mm. mixes I've been doing. Um, I've been concentrating, not concentrating, but I've been very meticulous in how I've been mixing them, and I've been making sure that I'm that Noel is in the mix. Um, really, uh, you know, he's in the mix as is mm. up there with everybody. Mm. And whereas you're quite right in what you were saying, he was quite often discounted musically, mm. but his contribution was actually quite large. You know, with his percussion, he was a great percussion player, mm. really good percussionist. But I think that that was also overlooked because of the way he looked. It was people would comment on the way he looked, yeah, and they'd yeah. say, "Oh, who is that bloke?" You know, he's like he just st- he was great. He just stood there doing nothing. You know what I mean? What but I, in actual fact, yeah. he was contrib- contributing a lot. What I, what, I, what I used to think, and I, I still do sometimes when I watch some of the footage, is Noel is like the ultimate fan of the band, but he's in the band as well. And yeah. so it's almost like you've got one of your number one fans on stage oh, with I never you. thought about it like That's that. sort of how I, I've often viewed it with him, yeah. which is not to discount his, his mu- musical or conceptual contributions, but just... Here's this guy sort of vouching for the band while the band is happening, because there's that footage, there's footage of like you know, Tim and him with the tambourines together. Yeah, 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 and yeah. It's oh, like sweet it's dreams, like yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's like the the tall shadow behind Tim sort of eating yeah. him on. Like he's kind of a foil. To yeah, no, oh yeah. Well, I think you can read that into yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, with Noel, Noel's just an enigma. Mm. He always has been, and mm. um, he's um he's he's brilliant. He really is brilliant. He's got a um. He's got an Instagram page. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's yeah. called um, Noel Zomb- uh, Crombie, yes. Crom Zombie. Yes, it's called. Yeah. and it's just Noel being Noel. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and um, I guess that's um, in a way why Tim's been so keen to get Noel um, onto this new project we're doing. Yeah, and um, already he's come. You know, he's Noel's come to the party. He's brought, he's done a bunch of recording and sent it over, and we're doing it all just um, via yeah, the yeah. internet. You know. Yeah. And it's it's turning out great actually, um, but you can't understate Noel's contribution just for the end in terms of like mm. just the impact. Visual impact is always stronger than yes. oral impact, yeah, you yeah. know, for people. It's yeah. it's so instant. You look at something and you you've made your you've made your decision about what it is already. Yeah. And when you look at Noel, you know, Noel's a huge part of that. He used to design the sets and. The, the film clips and and it's all that extra layer thing too like you look at it and go man those are some wacky costumes and then you know there's that great documentary that Sam Neill narrates where it's like and then Noel's like well these are all uh, Picasso inspired these are all Cezanne inspired and you know each set of outfits that he's made and designed is based on a favourite artist of his and then when you hear that and see that you're like whoa like to a lot of people, these were just probably crazy, colourful outfits. Yeah, well, I didn't know that. that whole... Well, there you go. <laughs> I had no idea. There you go, you've learned something uh, today. What a bloody rip-off, Noel. <laughs> oh, I haven't got to have them on about that. <laughs> so, I mean, the, it sounds like quite a tight unit is f- a form... Oh, first of all, I was going to say, so who's the longest-serving member of Splittings? Is it you me. or Noel? Yeah, it's me. It is you, isn't it? 
Yeah. Oh, well, I suppose... Well, you're about um, the same, probably, but... I was there just before Noel. Right, um, Just okay. before Noel, um, but he joins shortly after with Robert. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I joined first, and then Noel and Robert joined at the same time. Right, okay. But, they, they, but they'd always been sort of... You're lurking. Hovering, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I thought that you were the longest serving... Yeah. The person that went through all the lineups, basically, from, you know, from when it really gets going. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And so... Um, that sort of 74 to 76 period, um, debut album, Australia, England, it's quite a, a tight unit, but then all of a sudden, the next couple of years, the lineup changes start, that Phil comes and goes from his own band, the um, Paul's fired, Mike Mike walks out. So what's the, what's the mood like? Because, uh, you know, what you're describing to me is sort of 74 to 76, you're quite a tight, self-believing unit that's doing the work. And can you remember a moment when things get particularly fractious? And oh, yeah, it was the, the most... The band was... Um, it was a very calm band. There was no fighting ever apart from once. And maybe... And that was the, the infamous thing, yeah. and, which I didn't really see. I didn't see the fight. I wasn't yeah. there. I might have been doing something This else, is Phil and Tim. This is Phil and Tim, and, and Chun was trying to pull yeah. them off each other, I think. But um, I wasn't. didn't see it happen. But I did see, on occasion, I, I, it used to frustrate the shit out of me with Phil would just walk off stage. Yeah. It would just... Um, mid-performance. Mid-performance, and then be waiting for the guitar solo, and, and it wouldn't be there. to turn around and Phil wouldn't be there. And... You'd, You'd come off stage and there would be Phil and his um, wife, uh, uh, girlfriend, whatever, Jolly, um, and she'd be with him and he'd be sitting there looking, you know, sorry for himself. And I would say, you can't walk off stage, you just can't do that. You're leaving the band in the lurch. We really. And he'd just say, um, oh, I broke a string and it really threw me. You know, some sort of spurious excuse like that, which for me didn't mean anything. It just sounded like a kid throwing a tantrum to me. Yeah. Um, and of course, I don't know what he was feeling. I can't possibly know mm. what his reactions to things like like that are going to be. Mm. Um, but all I knew was that in a professional environment, that's you couldn't do that. You didn't yeah, do yeah. that. You know, you move on. You work out how to. Yeah, how to, how to cope with that. all that how stuff. To, yeah. But he, he never learned how to cope with all that yeah. stuff. And I guess that's one of his... Um, that's one of things that makes up Phil Judd. You mm. know, he's never learned how to cope with uh, the pressure um, and stress that he feels in on, this, on in a stage environment mm. um, when things don't quite go the way he would want them to go. Mm. In other words, possibly if he doesn't quite expect something to happen then he feels entitled to be able to do whatever he wants in terms of walking off or... So what So what throws Phil then, of course, throws the entire band or members of the band, like you say, you watch him disappear and it's like, what the fuck? Like, well, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But um, it didn't happen that often. Yeah. But it wasn't sort of the only things that yeah. happened yeah. you know if you know what I mean yeah. but the things that, that those were the things that perturbed me, me most I didn't give a toss about um, Phil's eccentricities otherwise you know because yeah. we've all got our eccentricities but and our foibles but 
um, when they're on stage and when they affect the performance like that, yeah, um, you just can't have it. Yeah, sorry, see you later. Yeah, you know, and um, I think that's uh, to be honest, I can't remember how we left. You, I mean, he probably t- has told you whether he left or whether we. Whether, uh, he left in uh, that's right. He left yeah. in um, Texas. Yeah, and came back to England, and we just carried on without him. Yeah. And did we get Phil back? Uh, did we get um, Rob, and, Rob back in at that point? I yeah. think we did. I think yeah. Rob came back in at that point. Yeah. But and then Phil. So, so we, had, we had Rob being quite a bit. Tim and I headed up to Baltimore to Tim's uncle's place and um, we wrote uh, Dysrhythmia. Songs for Dysrhythmia. Mm. Tim and I'd never really written anything in my life in terms of songs, but I've yeah. written lots of bits of music. Um, and basically, Dysrhythmia was uh, an album that we finished off, uh, we compiled it and um, compiled the songs and finished songs off, and I basically helped Tim to finish his songs off mm, mm. in Baltimore. And uh, then we went back to London and recorded the album. And you've got, um, a, you've got a new drummer at this point? Well, we must have, we must have gone back with the songs in tow. Mm. Oh, hang on, was the, was the drummer... Was, Malcolm must have been with us already. Malcolm yeah, really yeah. must have been with us. That's his first sort of rec- record must, that he's on. That was the first record he was on. He, he must have been with us through, through, through America. The States yeah, because Paul, Paul gets fired in, like, 76. Yeah, so... And do you remember anything around that? Like... You know, I've talked to Paul. He sort of said Mike Chun delivered the news to me, and oh, and, really? And basically, you know, I he seems to think of it as a the band needed to change, so they decided to change me. Like he, that's really all he's ever been able to work out um, about. <clears throat> Generally speaking, when the drummer gets kicked out of a band, <laughs> it's usually because the lead singer wants the drummer gone. Yeah. And it's usually, from my experience, because um, a drummer is doing something which makes the lead singer feel uncomfortable in his yeah. role, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the worst, the worst thing you can do as a drummer is to make a lead singer feel uncomfortable, you mm-hmm. know? So, Croft, I call him Croft, yeah. uh, he... He was a great drummer in some ways. He's a great swing drummer, great field drummer, um, verging on jazz at mm, times, mm. quite light, you know, quite a light drummer. Yeah, and very I think, built and I, Yeah, and I think that we we were sort of heading towards more of a rock, mm. pop rock sort of um, sound and and feel. We wanted the sort of more the the underneath thing going on, the yeah, four yeah. four thing, or the yeah. the more proper rock backbeat. Yeah, yeah, backbeat and kick and snare and mm. hi hats and stuff. With Croth was always it was um, more a colorist. He was a colorist, more of a percussionist mm. than, a, than a, mm. a solid drummer. You know. Yeah. And um, in, the, in the way that Tim was thinking, I think that he that he that he was wanting in a, yeah. in a drummer. And there was also. One little aspect of Croth, he's always had a little bit of a. Um, he's always loved complexity in everything he he, he does. Mm-hmm. He loves sophistication and com- complexity in music as well, and in drumming in particular. Yeah. And he loves to do things that sometimes he's not quite able to pull off. Yeah, right. And 
you've really got to learn how to do things 100% yeah. fail-safe when you're on stage. Yes. You can't, you can't hang the band out to dry. And on a few occasions that happened, you know, mm-hmm. just when he was doing films and things, and I could see that it used to really irritate Tim. Yeah. And um, so um, I guess, you know, those little, little things combined with the fact that Tim was thinking in terms of more more in terms of a, a solid backbeat type, mm, type drummer mm, mm. that um, so know. where does Mel come from I mean I know he played in a band he actually played in a band with Nigel yeah, so he ends up bringing yeah. yeah so he ends up bringing Nigel in but did he, does he answer an ad is yeah, he spotted yeah pretty much he answered yeah. an ad in the Melody Maker classic yeah and um, we tried out a whole bunch of, we hired a, a horrible little rehearsal room in a basement somewhere and um and tried out a whole bunch of drummers in one day and Malcolm um, was the best um, and we liked his drumming we were a little bit unsure of him as a person mm. um, mainly because in one or two of the first conversations we had with him he started talking about his songs uh, and yeah. how he wanted, he wanted us to play <laughs> yeah, his songs yeah, yeah. bring his songs along trigger warning drummer <laughs> trigger <laughs> warning <laughs> <Yeah>. right absolutely <laughs> alarm bells <laughs> yeah and so so we weren't 100% sure I think it was mainly Tim wasn't wasn't 100% sure about it mm. also I, you're I like, hiring your first outsider right like yeah. he's the first non-Kiwi in non-Kiwi the, that's right in the band in terms yeah. of he's not from but, yeah yeah but it was a great relief to have, to have a drummer who who played uh, in the way he did you know it, mm. it was a bit more um, it wasn't such a great relief but it was the difference between Croft and Mel was um, you know marked very marked difference mm, night and day yeah, night and day, but not good and bad. Just yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Croft was always lot, quite a light drummer. Yes. And, yeah. and Mal had that sort of, you know, the punch. Yeah, the punch and, and the, yeah. Uh, it's hard, hard to actually describe. No, no, Maybe he was just louder and, yeah. and maybe louder and more rocky, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, and he just, he just tends to arrive at the time that the band, it's, it's interesting, it's not because of him that you start moving in a slightly more conventional yeah. way but it's just these things line up it's, he's a slightly more conventional style drummer and the music's still weird and wonderful but it is starting to sound more I guess there's external pressures on that it's time for well, splitting to try to have a hit yeah well the rock, that's right I mean Tim was always I mentioned that before Tim was mm. always very um, you know keenly aware of uh, singles and the yeah. power, the, the power yeah. of uh, radio play which I never thought twice about myself but um so, um, of course, we had Tim's first batch of songs, or Tim and my first batch of songs. Mm. No Judd songs. Uh, were there any Judd songs on that record? On Judd's Yeah, really okay yeah I think there is one. Oh, Sugar and Spice. Yeah. Which I really like. I should, mm. it's, a, it's a great song. Mm. That one. Um, quite clever lyrically, I thought. Mm. Um, yeah. But uh, mainly Tim's songs, and, you know, it was... Tim's first foray really into him finding himself, you know, discovering whether he could write songs. You know. mm. He'd never done it before, really. Mm. He'd had that one song, maybe, and he'd contributed a lot to Phil's songs, mostly. Yeah. In mental, yeah, but Phil was notes. bringing the starting ideas. Yeah, and pretty much, I think. Pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's how I understand it. And then, and all of this, Mike Chun walks out. Yeah, well, Mike, when when Phil left, um, Chun just came to us and just said, "Look, I think it's." probably the best time for me to go as well because um, I'm suffering, <laughs> mm. suffering mentally from some kind of, uh, 
he called it agoraphobia. Yeah. Whether or not it was is yeah. another thing. But he used to carry around little tablets and that his his father prescribed for him, um, which sort of allayed uh, quite a bit of his fear. He used to yeah. have um, uh, you know um, panic attacks, um, anxiety yeah. attacks all the time. So he he found that when he came home, they it made it better, and so he just decided to come home and. Um, and so this is an this is an easier fix because you've already got Mel in the band and he just suggests Nigel. Yeah, basically. That's right. You know, he's got a mate. He's got yeah. a mate. He, I think uh, Nigel was in Europe at the time, and when uh, Nigel arrived, he didn't know what hit him yeah. when it came to the band and the sort of music uh, we were playing, and also what he was asked to wear on stage. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, he, I can remember the first gig. I think one of the first gigs was um, Friars Aylesbury and um, Nigel had to put on his costume that of course Noel got the little grin as he did because yeah. he gave him his costume yeah yeah you know and uh, and of course makeup as well because Nigel they were rock and rollers you know mm. and uh, never done anything like that mm. and and Nigel was really uncomfortable to start off with now you don't you don't ever see Nigel on lists of the world's great bass players, but I feel like he should be there. Like Absolutely, he's a, a he wonderful song-serving, melodic, yes. exploratory, innovative, brilliant, rock-solid bass player. Feel, yeah, feel bass yeah. player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you connect with him straight away musically? Uh, me personally, yeah. Um, or does that at, always at that take a feeling time, out? At that, at that point in time, um, we had a different, a new rhythm section. We used mm. to rehearse at a place called Easy Hire in Chalk Farm, I think it was, and. Um, Nigel and Mal came along, and of course Neil arrived at some yes. point shortly yeah. after that. Very, very close. It was at the same rehearsal room, and and um, but with Nigel, I liked Nigel. I really like him as a as a as a person. Mm. He's um, really easy to relate to, easy to communicate with, and um, he's just a nice guy. And um, he can be very ornery as well. I used to call him the ornery critter a lot because he would uh, he would get really. Um, Fanatic, fanatical about things, and um, and very angry and upset with people. Mm. You know, um, receptionists and <laughs> yeah, and um, and he could be he could be quite ornery, you know. But um, generally speaking, he, I just find him he's a very warm mm. person, a very warm, um, kind guy. And Malcolm, uh, Nigel, and I. Um, we got it. We had a house in North London. The three of us. We lived together for about a year. Yeah, mm. that was in about '78. But um, no, um, generally speaking, in the band, I was always over in the corner with my keyboards, yeah. twiddling, yeah, and trying to get myself right. <laughs> and then, yeah. but, but I did notice that there was a big difference when Mel and and Nigel. Yeah, um, Nigel was because they had because they had a familiarity having played together. They had a, they were. A, I guess so. They hadn't played together for a long time, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. But they were... But you, reconnect, were more but you do reconnect those things. You know, when you've... I mean... Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and they were more conventional. You know, they were more conventional yeah. players yeah. Um, who whose style totally changed within the context of the band, mm, I think, mm, you know. Mm. Now, you mentioned Neil. He comes into the band. How does that work exactly? Because uh, the, the, the story seems to go that Neil's basically spent his early teenage years 
in the wings waiting to be called up to split ends or as a sort yeah. of you know as a fan and as a kind of opening yeah. act and yeah, as a that's right. one day I'll, I'll get in Big Brother's van yeah. how, how does it end up happening does Tim need to be convinced of it or does, does Tim no, convince um, you guys or no what happened was um, well, from my memory anyway mm. it is a long 40 years ago <laughs> yeah um, was that we were thinking of who we could get to replace Neil and of course I immediately said Alistair Adele that's right, yeah. So I put Alice. He was going to replace Phil, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, and there was another guy called Mike Kahn, mm-hmm. who's in Auckland, he used to live in Auckland, he used to be a well-respected guitar player. I can't remember who else was on the list, but Alistair was at the top, and we decided on Alistair, we offered him the job. Mm. I rang him up, and he said, he, said, um, he was flattered, and uh, that he would get back to us very soon, and a couple of days later he got back and said, no, nah, I don't think so. Right. He said, um, I guess he was just doing his own thing. Mm. Um, and it would never have worked with Tim and, uh, with Tim and Alistair anyway. Yeah, yeah. But um, so at that point, Chun brought up Neil. And because Neil never really, his name was never really, um, yeah. you know, seriously in the fray because... He was very young, he was 17. He'd never played guitar before, electric guitar. Mm. He played acoustic. And um, he was just never a serious contender, you know. Mm. And um, But as soon as Chun suggested it, we just sort of looked at each other and thought, oh, maybe that'll work, you know. And it, 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 it was almost, uh, there was nobody else in the frame that I, that mm, I can think of, mm. so it might have almost been by default, mm, mm. you know. And so he, I, th- I seem to recall, he comes over to England, and as you say, he doesn't even have an electric guitar, hasn't played one. No. And Not, well, I don't think he'd ever seriously yeah, probably pick yeah, one yeah, up. Yeah, he'd probably yeah. pick one up, but he's never played. But, but, yeah. And the next minute, he's in Air London with Jeff Emmerich yeah. producing. Yes. Kate Bush next door, recording <laughs> Wuthering Heights, you know, next studio, yeah. and um, and being asked to play all the electric guitar on an album. Yeah, and, and on things like Boulder's Brass, yeah. some really long-serving signature Split End songs yeah. start to turn up. You mean, yeah. if, if Split End's formed tomorrow, uh, reformed tomorrow and played a show... We'd be playing Boulder's Brass. You'd be Brass. playing Boulder's Brass, yeah. 100%. What else is yeah. on there? My Mistake. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Can't remember what else is on that yeah. record. But um, yeah, that's right. And um, but of course, Neil, true Neil Finn style. It's just water off a duck's back, really, for him. He just um, barreled into it. Mm. You know, mm. there didn't seem to be any pressure. No, there, well, there was no pressure put on him mm. by anybody. Um, everybody knew what the situation was, and I guess he was made to feel comfortable. And so. And Neil's, you know, he's pretty staunch. And he's a pretty staunch guy. He's a, he's a fuck you guy, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And by the next record, Frenzy, Neil's songwriting voice is starting to emerge, but he's very much co-writing. He's very much co-writing. Um, I can't remember what he wrote on that album. Give It A Whirl? As a, of course, Give yeah. It A Whirl. Yeah, that's right. He was starting to write. At that point, he was living with Noel in a place called Chorleywood, and um, the two of them had an ancient, old, um, an ancient old house, and they used to... Take acid and um, and <laughs> and go and play outside mm. and and write and write stuff together. They they, they called themselves the Ninnies. <laughs> <laughs> Noel and uh, Noel and Neil called the Ninnies. 
and I feel like that's the record Frenzy is the record where Split Ends kind of fully finally says goodbye to shall we say the ghost at that point of Phil, of Phil Judd. Judd I think so yeah because it's the but cover we're... image um, I, th- I think there might be one song that he's if not credited he's contributed something somewhere to one song on there but but I guess also just because it's the final album of the 70s as well in a way is my thinking that you know when it turns a corner to 1980 Split Ends is a Neil and Tim Finn yeah. led organisation yeah, starting yeah. to become yeah um, yeah Frenzy Frenzy was very much one of those albums that it could have been a totally different album I think mm-hmm. um because we'd recorded I See Red in between, uh, before Frenzy. Um, it was after Dysrhythmia, and we met this bloke called David Tickle, mm-hmm. um, who apparently was a wonder, a wonder Boy producer, 17 years old. Mm. And we, we sort of went, yeah, yeah, whatever, let, we'll try him out. And we ended up at um, Tittenhurst, what was it called? Tittenhurst Park? Um, uh, John Lennon's studio. Mm. Uh, Ringo Starr's studio used to be owned by John Lennon where they did the, the cover of um, shot the cover of um, Revolver mm-hmm. was it Revolver? one of those albums anyway and um, big old stately home you know and um, we this guy David Tickle was the scored the job of being the chief engineer in the studio in, mm. in, in Ringo's house and um he just offered a, he just said yeah come down and, and we'll, we'll record something so, which is what we did mm. we went down and recorded I See Red and Tim had brought along uh, the band I See Red um, he wrote it he'd been to visit Phil because he was still talking to Phil and visiting him by mm. train I think he hopped on a train and went down to visit I didn't even know where Phil was living at that point but um, Tim would sometimes pop down and see Phil and he said he came back one day and said, I've written this new song on the train. And it goes like this. When my baby's walking down the street, I see red. And it was he sung sort of in a swing um, yeah. stride style. Yeah, yeah. You know? And we went, um, well, that's not going to happen, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? And I don't, it was probably Neil. Yeah. Because it, it starts with that game yeah, 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 with, yeah. with the guitar. And, um, we just played it through like that once, I remember, and that was how the song stayed. Mm. That, that was how, how it stayed. And anyway, um, we recorded it with David Tickle at Startling Studios down there, just in one day, and um, he mixed it the same day. And I took the tape, and unbeknownst to the guys, I sent it back to Gadinsky in Australia, Michael Gadinsky, who, mm. who was still our record company, and I said, Here's our new single, Ha Ha. And unbeknownst to us, he released it. <laughs> <laughs> so he released it. And uh, it went to number 10 in Australia, which was pretty amazing for us mm. because we hadn't had any uh, mm. radio su- success in Australia prior to that. Um, so that was really our first sort of uh, bit of success yeah, at yeah, radio yeah. And, it, and it released its singles. You so, know. I, mean, I mean, it's a long, tough 1970s for Split Ends well, in a way when you, we you know, going... Well, we didn't go back to the whole thing about what actually happened when Phil yeah, yeah, left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so when Phil left, we were in pretty, pretty much in dire straits. But, mm. uh, I didn't think so myself. I was totally staunch about it um, mm. in terms of 
you know, believing we were still on a mission. There was Tim, there was me, there was Noel, mm. there was Robert, and there's then, of course, Neil and um, Mel and Nigel. And um, <clears throat> so I was prepared just to hang in for the long haul. And mm. But there were other things going on as well. Um, in 76, when we first arrived in England, um, we had a deal with A&M. Mushroom, and mm. who were our parent company, Michael Gavinsky's company yeah, in yeah. Australia, had done a deal with A&M in, um, in London, and they signed us up for two albums, I think. And we did um, Second Thoughts there, which was a revamp yeah, of Mental, mental notes, notes. kind of redux. Slightly, yeah. slightly better recording. Yeah, band, but may, may missing not be a couple better. of songs, got a couple of other ones. Yeah, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and then we recorded um, Dysrhythmia after that, mm. and A&M weren't that happy with Dysrhythmia because um, they, I can remember the guy, uh, somebody, Briggs, he was the A&M, the A&R guy mm. for A&M, coming in and, and listening to the one song, uh, Another Great Divide, Yeah. which was an, our attempt at doing a single for the album, and he said, his comment was, <coughs> oh, that'd make a good album, that one song, because of all the parts in <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Too complicated, what yeah. he was saying, it was too yeah. complicated. Still, yeah. sort of, we were on that cusp of still being, <laughs> sort of liking that sort of proggy, yeah. sort of overly sophisticated, over, not overly arranged, but highly arranged, mm. and lots, little, of, little, lots of different parts, sweet. sounds, yeah. and all that sort of stuff going on. Yeah. We, we were still, there was still a hangover from that era. Mm. Um, in another great divide. So anyway, we decided that we didn't want to be on A&M anymore because they weren't they because we weren't massively successful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we we sacked them. Um, I don't know how we managed to sack them, but we did. Mm. And we also sacked our agency and we sacked our management at the same time. So we had nothing going for us. Mm. We, we were floating. We were floating on the high seas <laughs> in London, and we thought. Well, I thought. It would be fine. I mm. thought we'll just get another manager, we'll get another agency, we'll, we'll get another record company, won't, won't be a problem. Mm. Because we're great guys, you know, mm. our music is so good. And I'm sure the other guys weren't so sure about that at all, but um, I, I had absolute faith. And so we set about trying to locate, you know, these industry people, and nothing happened. Um, and it went on for most of that year, most of, most of 1976, um, or was it 77? 76, I think, that's right. Most of 1976 we were looking for record company management and an agency, a live mm. agency, and uh, it never happened. So we went to, back to Michael Gadinsky in Australia, that tail between our legs, and said, <coughs> would you... Be, would you this was after we'd sent them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I see red. Yeah. Would you be interested in re-signing another deal with us? You know, um, doing another contract with us, so we can feel like we're going ahead, so we can do some more records, and carry on as a band. And he came over specifically to see us, and we we re-signed with him, new contract, better royalty rate, mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. And he was really happy, and so were we. And um, he put us with a producer called Mallory Earl. Now Mallory Earl. Um, we didn't want Mallory Earl to produce the next record, which mm. was Frenzy. Mm. We wanted David Tickle to produce it, and but Gadinsky had already done the deal with Mallory, so we had to go with him. 
So um, that particular record was a disaster, really. Um, I, I thought it was from a production point of view. Mm. Um, it just didn't work, you know, mm. uh, and also on all sorts of levels. But production-wise, it was a it wasn't a very good sounding record, and the arrangements weren't great. And mm. so it was the band was in in fairly dire straits at that point. I thought around frenzy. Yeah, you have this kind of weird sort of like that's around the time too of the Nimbasa thing with the like all your gear gets blown up. Oh, that's it, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It got um, you, burnt. Burnt yeah. in the fire. Yeah, so yeah. you you end up delivering this amazing, passionate, fiery set it was of a, borrowed equipment. It was brilliant. And yeah. There are snippets of that available on a couple of documentaries. That that's amazing. But it all sort of speaks to this. It's quite a, when you look at it, it's quite a, I guess, Phil leaving in particular and and the other changes around that, Mike and, and Paul and stuff, but that whole redevelopment of Split Ends actually takes a few years. A total redefinition yes, of yeah. the band, yeah. yeah. With Tim, you know, firmly at the front, pulling, yes. pulling us along, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, and me uh, sort of supporting, yes. and, and very much in the supporting role. Yeah. And, uh, and then we, <laughs> I was just going to say, and then, like, it, we get to 1980, and... 79, we, we recorded it, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, over, yeah. Over Christmas, yeah, we recorded, yeah. we recorded uh, um, uh, True Colours in Melbourne uh, with Mushroom over the Christmas period, Christmas, New Year's period, mm-hmm. because the studio was empty and it was cheap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when, when it comes out in 1980, it is... Particularly the announcement of Neil Finn as a songwriter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tim's doing good work too, you're doing good work, the band's doing good work, but it really announces that Neil can write songs. Absolutely. And he's still very young. Um, did you know, I mean, take take us into the uh, into the studio and into the creation of those songs, did you know you were bottling some kind of magic? Did it feel good? Or was it just churn and let's see what happens? No, it felt... Um, we were working with David Tickle at that point. Yeah. We'd finally got him on board. Yeah. After the disaster with Mallory Earl. Yeah. We said we're going to do the next album, and and Gadinsky, bless him, was able, said, "Yeah, fine, you can use him this time." And um, so we did. And he he was um, quite um, responsible in a lot of ways for the pairing back of the sound, because mm-hmm. um, we were probably still liable to kind of wander off, you know, and, and yeah. overcomplicate things. Yeah. And... Yeah, he had that new wave kind he of... He really did. He worked with a guy called, um, Chapman, uh, Mike, Chap- yeah. Mike Chapman. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he was his engine, Mike Chapman's, he was Blondie's producer. Yeah, yeah. He was his engineer. So, so um, Tickle had done a lot of work with Blondie, and so he had a real pop mentality yes. yeah. around arrangements and stuff. And... Um, most, you know, he, he he didn't arrange anything himself, but he knew when things were over over complex, mm-hmm. and when when maybe arrangements weren't serving songs properly, you know, and uh, so he was quite good at um, getting it, uh, getting a good simple groove for mm-hmm. a song. Mm-hmm. I remember him standing in the actual studio with us while we were putting down the take and sort of grooving with us, you know, mm-hmm. um, making sure that it felt good to him. And when it came to overdubs, I mean, it was a very layered record. I mean, there was basically drums, and the only thing that was kept, and then everything else, uh, you know, from the rhythm tracks, mm-hmm. drums was the only thing, things that were kept. 
and then the rest of it was layered. Mm. So everything was very um, considered from an arrangement point of view. Mm. Um, and that was quite a lot of uh, lessons in that for us, you know, because we'd never done it that way before, really. I mean, we knew all about overdubbing and stuff, mm. but we didn't, not to that extent, so that it felt really uh, sort of poppy and radio friendly and tailored. The sound was very tailored, the songs were very tailored. Mm. And so we kind of liked it. <laughs> I kind of liked it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I had good fun on some of the songs, like I Hope I Never, mm. which was just me and Tim. Um, yeah, well, that's real. Um, that's, I mean, you'd obviously done some great playing on the records up to that point, but that's a real moment, that song, isn't it? It's yeah. real. And again, it's. It's part of that kissing goodbye of the Phil Judd era in many ways too. Yeah. You know? Well, if you, um, it's actually interesting with that song. If you, um, there's a song walking through the underground. The best girl plays it strange. That song plays it strange. It's called mm. I Play It Strange. Mm. The song, it's another tie up, isn't it? Mm. Charm, play it strange. The song, play yeah. it strange. Well, the song, play it strange, is exactly the same chord as Hope I Never. Yeah, yeah. Exactly yeah. It's interesting when you think Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, wonder who got what from who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah funny how that, how that works with those sorts of songwriting or rivalries and partnerships. I agree. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so True Colours is a big announcement when it comes out. Feels like it. Yeah. It 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 does some. A it, statement, you mean? It's a statement, yeah, and it yeah. and it really signals the rebirth and redirection of the band. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, in spite of ourselves, you know. Yes. I think we always had a um, a, a huge album in us, and um, that one was the vehicle by which the great songwriting and the great tunes that we had was able to mm. became palatable you and, know what I mean yeah yeah yeah. and David Tickle is on record as saying that he actively um, tried to create a songwriting rivalry between Neil and Tim he, he was pushing them to compete with one another I don't know about that yeah no no he's, he's on record as saying okay. that that he and because that's when that starts certainly listening back to the stuff now you can see that you know if if Neil writes I Got You then Tim writes Dirty Creature or yeah. whatever like this they start these not only are the hits starting to come but it's almost like they're not directing the songs at one yeah, another, but it's a, outdo each other. It's basically. a bit like the famous yeah. Lennon McCartney thing, yeah. you know. You yeah. write, you write Penny Lane, so I, I go and write Strawberry Fields. It's a little bit like that, and he, he's on record as saying that he he tried to push that. He saw that that was the way the band was going to really. I don't remember yeah. saying that. Yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm. So do you, I guess do you do you have any memory of? how and if the songwriting pr process changed and what your role what was your role in that you know um, it changed from song to song yeah um, but generally speaking in those days um, Tim was so prolific mm. and Neil was so prolific Neil not so not so much but um, Tim would come along for, with 20 songs you know and Neil would come along with maybe 10 mm. songs and uh, there was no room for anybody else for start because you didn't get a look in mm. um, and also we weren't there to promote my songs or to, yeah. you know, to do Eddie's songs. We were there to do Finn's songs, let's face it, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and that's what 
we all knew and that's what the status quo was and um, but with all of those I think with most of those songs they were essentially m- melodies and chords were written no arrangements mm. ever all the arrangements were done by the band yeah um, structure was worked out by the band generally speaking mm. but the the you know the the pearls were already there. The, the melodies and the and the, the lyrical ideas were there. Mm. Although I've got to say, I remember when Tim came to me with "Poor Boy" and and uh, songs like "Charlie." I remember "Charlie" as well. I told him to what what he should write that about, mm. but I can't repeat that. What it's all about. <laughs> and um, and with "Poor Boy," he said, oh, "What do you reckon I do the song about um, about an extraterrestrial?" I said, "Oh." It's a bit. It's a bit. Um, a bit lame, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but he did it anyway. But there was, you know, he did ask. He, you know, he did ask us yeah, about, about yeah. lyrics. Yeah. You know, he asked me, and maybe he asked me a lot about lyrics. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd tell him to change this or change that. But generally speaking, he, he went out off and did all his lyrics himself. Mm, mm. Mm. And so, you know, there's a there's a handful more Split Ends records to come after True True Colors. We won't go through them all in, in heaps of detail, but. All of these records have magical moments on them. I, I feel like the the next really significant one, and I, I mentioned to the, this to you when I got here off tape, is a big record for you is Time and Tide. Mm. A really big record for you and your sound. And, and actually, your keyboard sound across the Split Ends albums of the 1980s is, is very uh, defining and pardon the pun but pioneering mm-hmm. you know it's like you're you're experimenting with a lot of different keyboard textures and sounds mm. yeah I was yeah. you're bringing in gear yeah I guess I've just got some kind of beat towards um, <laughs> arrangements yeah. and sounds and I was always a wee bit um, frustrated in the 80s about mm. not being able to get really good string sounds and brass sounds and big pad sounds are really hard you had to make your own sounds up in mm. those days because mm. there was no such thing as presets yeah yeah you know, these days all the sounds are available on yeah keyboards. You, yeah you know um and samples are all available on the net you can get yeah. you know whatever you want it's just at a mm. it's just at a keystroke away um but back then i had to make up my own sounds all, all the sounds on all the bands records that i made i made them all up just yeah. sitting down with the headphones on and thinking and using my imagination really and and just um making up parts and and sounds to fit those parts you know um is that cool bending sort of thing on straight old line it sounds like a guitar solo but it's oh it's well, you is, on that. yeah yeah the guitar solo in straight old line is is uh is yamaha dx yeah yeah, yeah. there's lots of keyboard sounds on that particular song yeah yeah in fact, most of the songs is lots, there's lots of keyboards, and I don't know what that is. Uh, maybe it's over over active ego on my part, or it might just be the fact that we didn't really had a strong, a very strong guitar player. Yeah, yeah, that point. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Neil, right. Neil's always been a great rhythm player. Yeah. But you got to ask yourself, why did they get uh, Mike Campbell into um, Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you do, um, and then and then six months in a leaky boat. Is, is a very big song um, it's got a, a big component of is what you bring to it particularly the the kind of coda thing at yeah. the end but you you bookend that song because your composition leads into it yeah do you want yeah. to talk about creating that oh it was really um, 
What it was, um, was I remember when we were doing Time and Tide, I, I remember suggesting the idea that, it, that we could have a nautical theme. Mm. It seemed like when mm. we had the, Tim had the song Six Months in a Leaky Boat, and I thought, well, maybe the whole album could lean towards the nautical in, mm. in a loose kind of way. And I remember I'd, wrote, I'd written um, Pioneer. I don't write stuff, I just jam it and yeah, remember yeah. it. Yeah. That's what I call writing. Um, I'd written it um, several years prior to that, um, at a sound check. Right, okay. Uh, at the Bondi Lifesaver, which was basically a famous nightclub in Sydney. Mm. And um, it just all came out in one fell swoop. And I thought that it would suit the six months in a leaky boat as a, as a prelude to yeah, it, really. Yeah. And um, so I just recorded it one night, just uh, Hugh Padgham and I just quickly recorded it. it took about 10 minutes to record the whole thing. And um, we just Put it on the front of six months of the leaky boat, and it's stayed there ever since. Mm. Kind of, and it's, it's become part of it now. Mm. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, it's like one giant big long song as much yeah. as it's two separate pieces. Yeah, definitely. and the bit on the end was yeah. essentially the band was uh, the band jammed there. Um, yeah, yeah. It was it was just a piece that the band added on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this, um, I mean, that record, Time and Tide. It's uh, you know your your flavours are through it. You're the dominant musical voice I think on that record but the dominant voice on it is Tim's as a writer yes. uh, a lot of autobiographical material yes. and in a way I mean I hear it as the as the major start of uh, of Tim's unravelling it's it's you know uh, he, obviously yeah. Dirty Creature is about depression mm. um, Haul Away there's depression in that and full life story in mm. that um, Six Months in a Leaky Boat could be you know, a, a metaphor for many things, New Zealand itself, but also for, I guess, his time in the band. Frustration around the band not achieving what he wanted to do or him not. Do, do, do you have any thoughts around that? Like, do you, because um, he leaves the band a year or so after that, is, the, is this the start of a dark time for him? And his, uh, He'd been going through a dark time, yeah. I think. I think he had a, he it started, well, we all, not all of us, but, um, I suffered some serious panic attacks um, and when I was 25, that would have been 77. Mm. What seriously bad panic attacks and I, to this day, don't know why it happened at that time, why it even happened, you know, mm. to me. But I was, I'd become, um, I mean, I was doing my best to cope with it, but I, I wasn't coping all that well, so I was on tranquilizers and things, you know, serapaxes and things for a few years. Um, and. The guys in the band didn't understand because Chun had had it already or something mm. very similar to it. Mm. And I related to Chun. I said, I thought, this is the same sort of thing as Chun was getting. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's got something to do with the lifestyle or something. Or, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's got something to do with flying. I don't know. Mm. Um, and so then Tim got this thing that he called Dirty Creature. He expressed it in the song Dirty Creature, which is a very similar kind of feeling of... Mm. of panic and uh, paranoia. fear, paranoia, all of those mm. things and just, you, it's like your worst nightmare, mm. but a, a continuing worst nightmare happening in front of your eyes during the you know, just in everyday life and you can't you kind of figure out where, what's going on, but you know that you're not well mentally. And, um, and then Nigel got it, it's very odd, Neil and Nigel, uh, Neil and Noel never suffered from it mm. that I know of mm, mm. and um, 
but it just seemed weird that there was a bit of a thread of it going through the band but Tim did suffer from it Tim, Tim had gone through a marriage um, I just think also that the lifestyle we were leading was uh, one of um, there was no kind of home base yeah you know? yeah, yeah we were just travelling open-endedly mm. suitcase yeah, we didn't have anything we didn't have you know you know what I mean I've often thought it's funny how so many people think of New Zealand uh, Splittings as this very crucial most important New Zealand band but you for the duration of the band's first full run you're largely transient you know there is yeah. those first few formation years in New Zealand but uh, post mental notes you spend a yeah. lot of time in Aussie you're in America on yeah. and off you're in England a lot of touring you know a lot but yeah a lot of lot of um, on the road a lot and even yeah. make, making countries your home for a while yeah that's right yeah, yeah we did uh, and I still can't I still haven't got an explanation for it as mm. to why it, it afflicted all of us in that way but it hasn't afflicted me since then and mm. I sort of have to wonder if it's something to do with the lifestyle but I yeah. can't, can't quite get my head around it yeah. because of the feelings that were the feeling that you have it's it's a really big thing for the band generally yeah. you know it's, it's gone through the pervaded the whole band really um, so t- Tim, Tim, Tim puts out a solo record while the band's still going Is, mm. I mean Fraction Too Much Friction was that was that demoed as a split end song? It at was one a point? split end yeah. reject. Yeah. Along with a lot of Tim's songs. Tim would come yeah. to as Because he was he'd, so prolific. He yeah. was so prolific, he'd come along with so many songs and yeah. if and if we'd just play them through, um, uh, as he wrote them, um, mm. and and it didn't gel straight away and we didn't get enthusiastic straight away, well he'd just toss it. Mm. Or it didn't feel good to him, he'd just toss it away, or we would toss it away. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that we tried we tried recording fraction. And uh, it was just not very good mm. compared to the version, the final version or the definitive version he mm. did with that Sydney band, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, Richard T on piano. Yeah, yeah, and um, and that's a great version of it. You know, it really is. Yeah. What, what was the band's thoughts about hearing that? Was it like any slight sort of oh, we missed a trick there? Or no, not just, at all. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, I mean, I've never really liked the song that much, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. I don't think we liked the. I mean, Tim was writing some. Tim, I, I, I dare say that Tim and I. Uh, he was always very aware of singles and what was commercial. Mm. I was always, um, kind of, always looking for things that were a little bit more uh, introspective. I suppose music that was a bit more odd, a bit more mm. quirky. I suppose horrible word that word quirky, but yeah, yeah, uh, word, uh, music that was darker, perhaps. Yeah. Um, or music that I felt that I could get my teeth into and pop, I didn't like pop songs much. Mm. So I guess what I'm getting towards here is there's a moment when Tim leaves the band but yes. then he ends up actually coming back for the farewell yeah, that's right. tour. So what, what what was the discussion around that? Did he just up and leave and announce it or? It, it was all pretty casual. Just yeah. Really. He just said, oh, I think I, you know, he just basically said, it wasn't a great announcement or anything. He just yeah. said, oh, I'll leave the band. I think I'll leave the band now. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, um, and I think a lot of that, uh, our um, reaction was based on the fact that a lot of the stuff he was writing was so poppy that we it just didn't really, f- we just didn't feel like we wanted to play it mm. and that we didn't play it very well. 
we just didn't play his the stuff he was writing very well. Um, if you listen back to songs like um, Semi Detached, mm. um, you know Semi Detached mm, at all? Mm. The song, um, it's they're the they're the sort of Tim Finn songs I love. Um, and later, latterly, he wrote um, songs like Imaginary Kingdom, which mm. I love as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, songs that are, I don't know, they're sort of, for me, they're just, um, they're like escapes, you know, big escapes of, uh, that, that where anything can happen mm. and you're not tied down to yeah, well, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, quickly get out before the DJ comes on and takes it off, you know. My, my thought is, with one or two exceptions, when Tim tried to write a pop song, you could always tell he was trying very yes, hard to I, write a pop song. I agree song. with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes that some, worked out okay. That's right, and yeah. sometimes he'd write a great pop song in spite of himself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when he wasn't yeah. trying. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I just think, I mean, for me, my Tim's favourite songs are the ones... Well, I mean, there's songs like Stuff and Nonsense, yeah. I Hope I Never. His ballads are really, you know, yeah. brilliant. Tim's ballad writing is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the See You Round album seemed to uh, cop some flack for a while as being and deservedly. like... You think oh, Really? You think so? Well, you think it was a bit of a phone-in? It, it was a bit of a patch-up job. Yeah. You know? Um, we, I've warmed we to were, it just recently. I've thought... I've thought... Only just recently I've thought it's a little... been a little unfairly maligned. Oh, okay. like, I reckon there's... You know... Obviously there's I Walk Away as a strong mm. song. But but I feel like there's three or four quite strong songs on there. There are. All Neil ones. I yeah, quite yeah. Like, I actually quite like Dr. Love. There's one... And... Uh, um, one mouth is fed. I quite like that. Yeah. Um, it's funny how these things work. If you if you go back and listen to See You Around Now as a precursor to Crowded House rather than a finale for Split Ends, it makes more sense. Oh, uh, quite possibly. Yeah, I hear voices. That's another mm. one. I love that song. It's mm. a brilliant song. Um, yeah, I know. I didn't see it as that at all. Mm. Uh, mm. I, I saw it as. <coughs> Really, we started off by just saying we'll just do an EP. Mm. We'll just finish off with an EP, and then I think we recorded about six songs or something. And we thought, oh, about four songs as an album, so we might as well go the whole hog and just um, get a couple from each person. I think I think that was essentially what it mm, was. Mm. And so there, you know, you could uh, mount a case and say that um, there's a few fillers in there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, the, the band, when does the decision come and how does the decision come? Is it as casual as Tim saying he's leaving the band that the band wraps up? Is no, that... no, Tim left the band. We... No, no, I know. I say, is, is when he leaves, yeah. is the actual decision to wrap up Split Ends about as casual as how he delivered the news to you? Like, do you... Or no, is... no. Um, when, um, when Tim left, it, it was... We sort of went... Well, we're sort of expecting it, and we don't mind too much because we mm. can go on with Neil. Yeah, we've still got a lead singer, and we've got a great writer. Yeah, so we'll carry on with Neil. And then Neil said yes, and, and well, there was no great decision around that. Yeah, we just, we just carried on. Yeah, and then one day it was just a call from Neil saying, oh, I've, "I've decided to, that I don't, I don't really want to have to redefine what this band is." Yeah, and um, so I'm just going to go off and do my thing, and um, see you later. So you, it wasn't cutthroat. It yeah. wasn't nasty. It wasn't. Acrimonious. It was yeah. just. It was fairly. Um, and I think by then I was thinking, personally, I was thinking, you know what? I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit sick of it now, guys. It's yeah. been 13 or 12 years for me. Yeah. And um, I really want to get into some production, and I really want to, you know, 
do some playing for other people because by then I was being asked to do quite a lot of production work mm, mm. In, in Melbourne. So I just thought, I quite like this. I quite like doing production and, and um, not being out on the road and not so, travelling. So Tim comes back for one final. You decide to do the ends with a bang. Yeah, we decided to do the, to do the wash-up tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is, a, which is a, I think, quite a milestone. Absolutely. You know, in not just the band's life, but for New Zealand. And it really signifies a... a a big happening, a moment, you know. Yeah, I think they were the best recordings and some of the best performances mm. we've ever done. Mm. Um, luckily, they were recorded. Yeah. And I've mixed them um, on the first. First of all, I mixed them on the uh, extravaganza. Yes. Extravaganza record. Now was it? No. Anniversary. It was yeah, called. Anniversary. And then I then I remixed remixed them for for extravaganza and um, they they just great performances. They really yeah. are. Yeah. yeah. And Tim's just flying. Yeah. 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 It was a, it was a very much a victory lap. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, what happens in the, you know, after that, in that, in and after that wash up, what happens? Obviously, we know Neil is already stockpiling songs that go off to become Crowded House, and Tim's got songs, and so he's already done a solo album and. Shortly after he does another, you you say you're getting calls to, to do stuff and you're wanting to pursue that. What what happens for you directly after Split Ends ends? What do you? Oh, I just I just carried on like nothing had happened. Mm. I felt um, I felt sad about it. Mm. You know, I realised after several weeks that um, it was a sad event. It was a milestone event in my life that Split Ends was no more and it would never be again. Yeah, and that we probably wouldn't even see much of each other. You know, mm-hmm. um, Noel and I remain really close, quite close friends. Didn't see much of Tim, but I um, or Neil. But I, oh, hang on, of course I was at Crowded House for a while, wasn't I? Sorry, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, that is, but I yeah. guess in terms of you being in Crowded House, that's kind of eighteen months or a couple of years on from when Splines yeah, wraps. Yeah, I, kind I, of, I think it? I just, I think I was just doing other stuff. Yeah. I, was, I think I produced uh, yeah. was that band, um, Pop Mechanics. I did yeah. them, the yeah. New Zealand band. Yeah. And that was a disaster. Oh no, that was earlier on. To be honest, that was earlier on. Yeah, that was a disaster because Andrew Snoyd left mm. uh, left the band the day I finished mixing it. Mixing it, then I had to go off and do a split ends tour or something. Or, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, it was. Um, I didn't end up by finishing the record, but I was being asked to do all sorts of things, playing mm. with different bands and and uh, producing bands like the Models and yeah. Joe Camilleri and um, lot. I can't. I can't remember them now. Yeah, yeah. There's, and there's so, lots. and Neil cuts that first Crowded House record, and he he asks you, I guess, basically back into the fold. You go on tour with Crowded House. Well, it it was not exactly like that. Um, the three of them went and recorded it with Mitchell Mitchell Froome. Yeah. And then they had to go and play, obviously, go and play live two of two of them mm. to support the record. And they got a keyboard player in, a girl, mm. uh, Jill Civil. This popped back in, <laughs> and um, didn't work out with her for some reason. So they got somebody else, Mike Gubb. God, they're all coming back, <laughs> and uh, that that didn't work out. And then so Neil called me from somewhere. And yeah. I think it was part way through the tour. I think. Yeah. You help. <laughs> so so I just you know packed up and went on tour with them. Hmm. And um, and it was really by that stage it was really starting to fire. The record was really mm. starting to take off, and 
Capitol Records, the guy who ran Capitol Records came up to me after one of the shows. So, yeah, it was up directly after the show and he said, so Eddie, so are we going to join the band or not? And I said, well, you know, I love, I love playing with these guys, but I, I've got other things I'm doing, you know. And um, he said, well, how, much, how, how big of a truck do you want? How big of a truck, a truck load do you want? He said, he said to me, I said, oh, it's, it's just not, it's not a money thing. It's just like I've got other things going on. He says, he says like what? <laughs> well, my wife's doing a, um, as I was with Raven at the time, and she's doing an exhibition. So we'll bring the exhibition to New York. <laughs> What's the problem? You know, because when a band's doing mm. well, mm. Um, nothing's an issue, mm. you know. Nothing's a problem, and uh, so they were really keen. Uh, this was Capital, really keen for me to stay in the band. But um, I just sort of felt like I didn't. I felt like whether I was in the band or not, it was Neil's band. It wasn't a band. Yeah, I was going to say you're it, a you're a side man in this band essentially. I was a side man, and I wanted it. I wanted to stay a side man. Right. I didn't want to be a side man, but think I was in a band. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, and that's honestly that's not putting shit on Neil. Like, that's, but it was Neil's band yeah. all the way through. Everything yeah. Neil's done uh, since Split Ends has been Neil's thing. Yeah. And if um, you know if he wants to do a collaboration with me, great. But it's got to be a proper one. Yeah. Not a pretend one. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but that that won't happen for that reason. Yeah. And um, with Crowded House, that's how I felt. I just sort of felt like if. I was going to be in the band. I I would love to contribute to to the band. I love play best band. I felt, personally, I felt that Crowded House was the best band I'd ever played with. Right. Yeah. 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 And yeah, they've got such a. I mean, through that first decade of their their proper run, you know, no one has a bad word to say about Crowded House as a live band. Yeah. They just have a fierce no, reputation. I just, I just yeah. I just loved it. I felt like I was almost cut out to be in that band mm. but I actually didn't want to be in a band if it was not going to be a proper band mm. you know and that's mm. sort of what I felt about it without without feeling I'm not putting mm. shit on anybody at all mm. I just want you know I only, I only ever want to work in a collaborative sense in and in a true collaborative sense and were you aware of um, I mean I know you're aware of them because you do the um, what is it the Ricky and Pete soundtrack oh with um, which has got a lot of Phil stuff on it, and it's also got Chanel Fenster. But were you, what were you, what were your thoughts around Chanel Fenster? Because obviously that's kind of one half of Split Ends. Well, you know, I formed a band, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I formed it with Phil. I asked yeah. Phil to come and see me. Yeah. And we went off and we became friends. Yeah. And again, so this we, is we, like we, a reconnection. We, we yeah, reconnected, yeah, yeah. and yeah. I thought, you know, this is going to be great. Um, Phil seems to have really turned a corner. And he's a different person. We're all different, obviously. Mm. We've all mm. grown up a lot, and perhaps it's not going to be like it used to be now. Yeah, yeah. And so we started writing stuff. That we asked Noel and Nigel um, to join the band, and did we ask Mike, um, was Michael Denelson too to join? Mm, that's right. And um, we started jamming, and we wrote all these songs really, really quickly. A lot of them were Phil's songs. Mm. Uh, well, some were Phil's, and some were just. Um, were mine and some were jams that the band jammed up and mm. wrote all this stuff and then we thought we'd do some proper demos proper demos and so we went into the studio to demo them up and we did all the music really quickly and then it came time for Phil to do the vocals 
and that's when the, that's when I realised nothing had changed at all. Right. Nothing. <laughs> Phil you know, sort of cracked up under pressure. Really. I mean, he got. A, I feel I was feeling for him. I tell you, but um, he just wouldn't. He couldn't do it. He mm. could not sing. And didn't matter what I said, how I tried to persuade him, cajole him, drink, give him drinks, give him joints, give him whatever. Mm. He, he wouldn't sing those songs. It went on for a, pretty much a whole afternoon and a night. Mm. Time. And by the end of it, um, he was, I was frazzled and he was in tears. And um, I said, we just looked at each other and I said, I guess it's me or you, Phil. And I, at that point, I jumped ship. Mm. Um, because I just sort of realised that um, I like to get things done, uh, you, know? I, 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 you know. That's what I was getting I mean, to. It, it's too yeah. hard for Phil to do stuff. Yeah. You know, I think it's he can do stuff at home by himself, but he's there's no pressure. Mm. There's no professional pressure. There's nobody nobody's expectations. There's nobody, you know, you know, hanging on him to finish stuff. Yeah. So he can he just does it and he does it really quickly. Yeah. And it's great. I love the stuff he does at home by himself. Mm. But working with him in a um, in a professional manner, manner, I in a way where you start on a day and you've yeah. got a period of time and you finish it. You know. Yeah. Um. It, that's kind of how I like to work. Yeah. And, yeah. And it seems seems a bit sort of cold and cutthroat but it isn't for me I just like to get stuff done but what was it you know do you just cut your uh, losses and go okay well let's find that band exists because as I say it's still that's what I was getting towards is it's kind of still half of or half of a version of split ends you mean when I cut loose yeah of Schnell I I, I just I just felt like I couldn't do anything about it Mm. so I just I was I I hadn't formed an emotional alliance Mm. with it at that point you know Mm. I was just hoping it was going to be good. I was hoping. And what did you think of it? Did you listen to the records? Like, oh, I loved you? it. Yeah, I think I thought Chanel Fenster was brilliant, and mm. I still do. Mm. Um, there's a lot of um, shortcuts, a lot of shortcomings. I don't like drum boxy sort of stuff. Yeah, feels some of it, but I'm just it's of the era though. In uh, a way, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I just think it's great. Yeah, that Sound of Trees. Sound I think of Sound of Trees yeah. really stacks up still. Yeah. You know, I think it's no, I know I do like it. I, I like it. It's really yeah. It's really um, appealing and it's really catchy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a real pop album. It actually, is, but yeah. it's very bent. Yeah, well, it's like I, I, you know, this is. I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but my simplistic read on it is it's quite cool hearing. Crowded House obviously has one of the Split Ends drummers in it with Paul Hester, so Crowded House forms and goes off and does one thing. Chanel Fenster forms with three Split Ends members and and kind of goes in a different direction, and and they're both versions of what might have happened to split ends if they'd kept playing yeah. in a way yeah you um, know aspects of the well if Judgy, if Judgy had stayed in split ends for instance yeah we could have gone that way yeah but it was just never going to happen uh, this is what's funny about Phil is that he he disappears he has his little run with the swingers he gives up he puts a solo album out gives up music altogether basically and then when he starts again Chanel Fenster is what might have been a split ends or half, or half of a split ends record if he'd stayed in the band the whole time. It's in that yeah. weird way that, and you know, I was thinking about it. His 
his career is a series of little sprints, little bursts. You yes. know, he, he, well, that's as much as he can sustain. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he can sustain it because he yeah. can do the. We were talking about Tim before how Tim's up when he's on stage. I mean, Tim's not a natural showman. He's mm. a, he's he's um, adopted a persona. Yeah. And um, it's a great. It works really and well. It works brilliantly. Yeah. And I don't think Judsy's ever no managed to sort of. I've never done it either. You know, I can't imagine what it would be. Like. I wouldn't be a, a front person for quids. So, you know, mm. uh, I just. Um, I think it's the hardest job in the world. And and when I come across a, a, a front man who's a like, there's a major difference between a front person and a and a great singer. Mm. You know, um, in my other band. Uh, We've had that that quandary. We've mm. we've um, had a lot of great singers come along who are just hopeless on stage. You know, in terms of being the interface between the crowd and the music. Yeah, yeah. You know, in terms of somehow involving the crowd, and yeah, um, there's a huge difference between being a great singer and a great front person. And um, and I think that uh, Phil. When he's got another front person and he can kind of skulk off and kind of hide behind some other some other persona that isn't the main p- persona, he's a, mm. he's a, he he can function in that way. Mm. But as the main person in a band, as the main front person, I think he's um, he struggles yeah, yeah. in his own mind. He doesn't need to struggle, but he does. Mm. Yeah. So around this time, a, a pretty significant thing to mention is around this time of Crowded House's album coming out and pre-Schnell Fenster, and I've seen the photo in your house, there's a photo of you in between Paul McCartney and Phil Collins, and that's because you play on a Paul McCartney record oh, yeah. that Phil Collins also plays on. Mm. Um, it's not thought of fondly in Paul McCartney's catalogue, that doesn't mean it's at all your fault. <laughs> and, no. and actually, it's one of those records, the record is pressed to play, it's one of those records that's starting to get a little bit of reconsideration amongst oh, some McCartney fans because a, a bit like a record like See You Round, it's been probably written off and then people have gone back to it and gone, hang on, pull this song out, pull this oh, song okay. out, there's three or four, you know, and I feel that's always the way with McCartney is that even at his absolute worst, there's always a shining gem. Yeah. How oh. do you end up on a Paul McCartney record? Oh, well, he just rang me up one day. I was asleep. It was about three o'clock in the morning in Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, he'd been working with um, Hugh Padgham, who was one of his producers, mm. one of the producers on, on his record. But he was he was recording it at his um, windmill studio in, uh, in on the south coast of England. And in a place called Hastings, close close by Hastings, and um, he just rang up and just said, "Hey, sport, you know." He just goes, "I'm looking for a keyboard player, you know, of one." And he was quite, he was just funny, right, mm. right from the get go. And he just um, said, said that he wants me to write, uh, write and play the keyboard parts on his album mm. that, that he's re- recording. And could I get over there next week? And I did. And um, there was the band was me. Him, um, Phil Collins, Pete Townsend on guitar, yeah, and Eric Stewart on piano. Yeah, playing piano. I was playing keyboards at that time. Yeah, because Eric Stewart co-wrote a lot of the material. I yeah. Think. yeah, yeah, like had a real hand in some of the songs. Yeah, no, it was yeah. an amazing. It was an amazing experience and a great band, and they were they were really 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 good musicians, um, like seriously good musicians. Paul hated playing. It, Paul mainly like playing drums and piano yeah um but um 
didn't like doing bass overdubs. Couldn't stand it. He, the ba- there was never any bass on anything mm. right till the very end of the record, and he did all his bass overdubs at once. <laughs> it's a weird, eh? Mm. Are you the only... I mean, I know way after this, Neil Finn can boast to being on stage with Paul at some point, but are you the only New Zealander that's been on a... a, a I would say significantly on a Paul McCartney record? I don't know. Surely. I would, I would say so. Yeah. There you go. It's pretty, it's pretty yeah, something, I isn't it? I need an award for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you hear the album and think anything of it, or...? Well, I didn't, I didn't like it much, to yeah. be honest, but, yeah. you know, the funny thing was, I was playing with Crowded House at the time, mm. and um, I took Paul a cassette of Neil's songs. I took, I took over a uh, message to my girl and maybe One Step Ahead or something, mm-hmm. plus World Where You Live, um, Don't Dream It's Over, mm. and another one. I took over the six songs. Mm. And gave them to Paul and said, "Oh, this," because he, you know, in our conversations, he was yeah. asking what I did and who yeah. I was playing with, and because uh, he remembers the band from yeah. when, when we recorded first at Air Studios, he came up once, and um, uh, what were we just saying then? Sorry, I got lost. You track. you took a tape of um, Neil. Oh yeah, yeah I, t- I took the tape and yeah. and he put it in his car, and he. He didn't. He never commented on it. Mm. Didn't say anything. Mm. Um, but of course, I've been playing those songs, and there. I mean, those songs. When Neil's at his best, he's as good as Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, um, he's got a. You know, it's the melodic sense second to none, and, and his he, lyrics are great. Well, I was going to say, and he learned a lot of it from yeah, <laughs> Paul McCartney. Yeah, that's absolutely. An absolute return to like the an angel. Yeah. He's got a beautiful voice. He yeah. can play beautifully. And yeah. All of that sort of thing, um, and uh, I think writers they go through. They go. I mean, I think when McCartney through was doing that album, it was one of those lean periods in his life. I mean, maybe yeah. he didn't have much to write about. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I didn't think the album was much chop. To, no, cause not, I was not com- many people cause, do. Because I was comparing that album yeah. to the to this new Crowded House album, which yeah, was had, yeah. which had life. Yeah, it had so much life and great songs. You mm, know. Mm. Yeah, um, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I but, mean, but it was an incredibly flattering thing to have oh, done. I mean, yeah. Carlos Salomar on guitar as well. Yeah, he was there. He was he was flatting with me at the time. Wow. Yeah, and um, what's his name? Um, Hugh um, Hugh Cornwall. Oh yeah. Yeah, we went out night clubbing often <laughs> while I was there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So then, what happens into the nineties? I mean, you you put out this record, Horse. Oh, that's yeah. in about what ninety five, is it? Uh, yeah, I actually um, just decided um, in about nineteen ninety two that I should just have a go at doing my own record. Yeah. And um, so I started just did it all by myself at, in Melbourne when I was still living in Melbourne. And um, so I just recorded that over probably a six-month period and just put it in my back pocket and then came back to New Zealand. Uh, we decided to come back to New Zealand, bring the kids up over here. Mm. And um, got to know uh, Paul Ellis. At, he was working at Sony at the time. And he heard the record and loved the record and um, gave it to Michael Glading, who, who ran the company at the time. And he put it in his car, and next minute I was signed to Sony over here, and they, they released the record. But I didn't really want to do it. I didn't have a band. Yeah. And I couldn't. I didn't have a vehicle to play it live, so mm. I said, I'll just slip it out, put it on the shelves, and if anybody wants to know about what I'm doing, they'll find that. And that's pretty much what happened. Mm. There was no promotion around the record. Mm. Mm. 
but you're proud of it. I love I it. I mean, I love that record. Yeah, I really yeah. like it. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I haven't heard it for ages now, of course, but yeah. um, the, no, people, the people I know who, who've got the record really love it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah. I imagine it to be one of those albums that that finds its fan base. You yeah, know, I like think the people, so. yeah, the yeah. people, if it didn't reach loads of people, everyone it reached likes it. Yeah, and I think that probably the people who I would have wanted to have impressed when I first started playing, mm. your Keith Emerson's and yeah, Rick yeah. Wakeman's would think it was pretty damn cool mm. for a keyboard player to come up with that sort of record because it's, mm. it's got some fairly demanding stuff in it too. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. And then I guess uh, around this time, the I mean, there's been a Split Ends reunion by this point, the early 90s, there's the, the shows in Auckland. Oh, yes. That's the first proper... That's the 21st anniversary of the band. Do you remember anything significant around that? I mean, I know it was recorded and it was released and no, did the two I shows. I can't even remember. Which ones are they? Are they the reunions? Not, yeah. Not the ends with the band. No, no, no. After that, like 93, 92, 92, 93. There's a couple of shows in Auckland. What was it called? Do you remember? Um, I'm sure it was 21st anniversary. 21st birthday, something like that. Gone. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just the two Auckland shows. It's completely and that's gone. It. Right. right. Don't remember. Uh, no, I don't. Wow. I'm sorry, it's gone. That's all right. You're busy, you're busy yeah. doing horse. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Gosh. But I was going to say that, the, in a way, the more significant ENZ-related reunion that happens is actually ENZO. The, the first ENZO project. Yeah, probably, is yeah. Because that actually reaches the whole country more that's more of yeah, a yeah it became yeah, yeah. It somehow captured yeah. the public's imagination so for what re- for whatever reason you just can't second guess these things you don't know mm, why things mm, take off mm. um i think largely it might have been the old um belt deal you yeah. know you had neil and tim dave dobbin annie crummer who else sam hunt sam hunt yeah uh can't remember the NZSO, the NZSO, and, <laughs> yeah. and and the youth choir. So yes. it's sort of like an intriguing project. And yeah. I think it, it, and Sony did the job. They they, they did the press, you know. Yeah, they yeah. The, they did the interviews. Enough time had passed. In yes, some enough sense time. Too. There was a lot of factors that yeah. caused it, but yeah. I think mainly, um, I think possibly it was the fact that it was um, it had the ends moniker on it. Yes, um, and it had. All the current, the, the current, uh, Neil, you know, ends heroes on it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, Neil and Tim, in particular, yeah. and Dave Dobbin, you know. So yeah, yeah. That's been Doesn't Noel do the spoons on it? Yeah, too? Noel's on the spoons. You, yeah. you know, yeah. speaking yeah. of the sp- sweet talking yeah. spoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was huge. It was, yeah. That was like one of the biggest. I think it was probably the biggest album of the year here, or if not, if yeah. not the biggest, one yeah. of the biggest. Yeah. And the same in Australia. It was huge over there as well. Yeah. And we toured yeah. it. We toured it here and there. With yeah. um, I think we used the Adelaide Symphony over there. Yeah. Which was great and. Um, was, we were playing. We played the, the stadiums, and they were all packed. Yeah, it was, it was big news. Mm. Mm. You've also done a lot of um, like kind of uh, musical director stuff for things uh, yeah. like Dancing with the Stars. No, I never did that one. What, I did. Um, one I did NZ Idol. Oh, NZ Idol. Yeah, that's it. yeah. yeah same that sort of thing one, though, yeah. like running a band. But yeah, I mean yeah. that's. I mean, what was that like? Like, I mean, I learned a hell of a lot. I don't really enjoy it. No, but I, really, I was going to say, that'd really be hard. The pressure and that'd the be speed. hard work. <laughs> it is really hard work, but I did learn a lot about, because, you know, 
not being a reader and not being a you know um, a, a, what's the word I'm not I haven't um, I haven't sort of traversed the kind of path of mm. being a musician gone through university and done the courses mm. and so forth and learned how to play an instrument properly so everything I've done has been fairly piecemeal and been picked up you know mm. I picked it up bit mm. by bit over the years and so there have been huge gaps in my knowledge about stuff about mm. pop music even mm. and, and, and things like um, harmony and counterpoint and uh, you know uh, keys and transpositions and things like that and uh, so when I did uh, New Zealand Idol that taught me a hell of a lot because mm. you were constantly having to do, do transpositions and things on the fly having to you know um, well you're having to uh, being the musical director having to um, deal with different personalities yeah, as well yeah. lots of different egos yeah. different agendas and dealing with the production team over here who wanted to make good TV Mm. You know, that's all they want is mm. good TV mm. so they want people to cry and they want anger and they want emotion <laughs> yeah yeah and then you're trying to deal with these kids and essentially they are kids mm. who are you know got good voices most of them yeah otherwise they wouldn't be there but may not have a, a creative clue in their body body yeah, you yeah. know and sort of placing them with the right song and advising them not to go with that song even though it is you know it might they might like it um Kind of traversing that sort of um, it's like a psychological minefield of both being a businessman and yes. a, and a musician well, or an artist. I guess you're biting like. your tongue in a way because there's a lot of that. You you know you Neil and Tim and Phil are three very different, hugely creative forces as songwriters and singers, and you've worked with them and grown up with them, and then you know you're talking about these people that that come to it with. Not an ounce of their creativity. No, no. Well, some of them may have, but yeah, that's yeah. not what the show's about. But that's about. not. Even if they have, that's right. You're yeah. not going to see it there. Yeah, you're not going to see it. They're, yeah, they're not yeah. I'm not trying to bad mouth them either. No, no, they're not interested in that. They're no. just interested in providing fodder for the masses, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and um, and at the same time, as you say, balancing that thing of a paycheck is handy. So, like for you, yeah, so I mean, you know, you've thing. got you, to have you it. You often you often get defined by the last big thing you did. Yeah. You know, I don't even know what people see me as these days. Probably nothing. You know, like as in what's he, what's it? I mean, Split Ends is the thing I've known mostly yeah, for. Yeah. And then Crowded House after that. And mm. then after that, it would be probably a producer, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but even production, I'll get that slip as well because this, you know, production has sort of changed. I'm, I'm sort of a, uh, I like music to be live. I like music yeah. to be played. Yeah. Even though I do a lot of computer stuff myself. Yeah, yeah. I like, um, I like, at, at, at best, I like to produce bands, you know, and bands don't get um, budgets these mm, days, mm. Not, not really. But, I mean, you seem very comfortable with overall and and proud of the legacy of Split Ends. I mean, why wouldn't you be? Oh, but, I am, I, and I look after it. I, really I was going to say, you're a custodian yeah. of it, I think, I, I because... Think I'm, I think I'm the custodian yeah. of the band musically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've just made sure that... Um, Everything we've got, and I, I mean, I'm mostly fond of the of the live yeah. um, legacy that we've got, you know, because that's where the band was real mm. in the studio. You can be real in the studio, mm, mm, I mean, well, mm. it's not real. It's not really the band, yeah. bit, you know. And uh, and also, the studio, studio is more about the songs, the the 
live is more about the personality. It is, and, the, and, and the and the energy, and, and really what the band is. When the band's up on stage, you're all there mm. together. You're all interacting at once. You're all one unit, and when that's happening, when that's yeah. firing, that for me is. Um, that's the truth, right? And there. also, not you know, not everyone. And, and when I say not everyone, most people in a, in your audience, they're not actually musicians, right? They don't yeah. know. So I used to laugh at this story and and be a bit smug, but now I've come to understand it differently. Someone once told me that, and it was in the context of I didn't really like Alanis Morissette's music. And someone once told me, look, I went to her show. And there's a bit in that song, One Hand in My Pocket, where she pulls out a harmonica and she plays basically the world's worst harmonica. Yeah. And it's just sort of back and forth across the mouth and in and out. It's yeah. just sort of, you know, pedestrian blowing. And she said the person next to her said, oh, is that what makes that noise? Now, I used to laugh at that and think, oh, fuck. But actually, how exciting for people to see what goes into a song. So what I'm trying to say is... Split Ends made these amazing songs and there would be people listening to them going I don't know what that instrument is mm. I don't know what that mm. sound is mm. um, why does Boulder's Brass sound like that and then when you hear it played you realise it's a combination of this interesting electric guitar line this underpinning acoustic what's happening on the drums all the different components yeah. and maybe that's a way for the layperson, which is most people yeah, live, you to mean. see You're yeah that's what's live. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. So, uh, live there's no hiding from the truth yeah live is what it is you know you're, you're making that sound in the moment and that's what I love about it mm. uh, on records you know there's constantly layering on top of layering on top of layering going on that you know uh, with keyboard stuff there's no way I can cover it all live mm, and mm. do the whole thing live um, but sometimes I can you know and Sometimes I can fudge it. Sometimes I can play. You know, hmm. I've only got two hands. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I, and I Split Ends was never the sort of band to ever use samples. Or should I say, ever use backing tracks? Yeah, yeah. Or, or a computer. You yeah, know, or, yeah. any, or any other people in the in the wings or under the stage playing other instruments. We everything that we every bit of sound that was made hmm. by Split Ends was made by the guys on stage. Hmm. You know, and um, so that for me is what the band is, the truth of the band, the quintessential band, you know, and that that's why I feel so um, protective of the live mm. tapes. Mm. Do you think there'll be, and I mean, I don't want to make you sound like you're sitting around waiting or hopeful for this, do you think there'll be any sort of other Split Ends reunion? No, no. I don't think so. I can't see it. No, I feel I like there's... I don't, I don't really want to, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I don't mind doing little things with the guys. I don't mind playing with Tim every now and then, or yeah. every now and then, or, or doing something with Tim and Noel maybe. Um, but I just feel that uh, I would feel like I'm in a covers band again, which is what it's mm. pretty much what it's like. You're getting up mm. and playing covers of your own songs, mm. and um, unless it was markedly different, you know. Yeah. And, and all the and, sort of milestones and moments have kind of passed now, really, in terms of it reaching the people that really wanted to have it happen, audience-wise, mm, I think. Quite possibly. And I think um, if, if it was, if there was ever to be um, some kind of get-together again, mm. I'd want it to be... Informal? Uh, well, or, even, if it was, uh, even if it was live, yeah. in front of people, I would want it to be um, acoustic. Yeah, yeah. I'd want, to, I'd want to play piano. 
Mm. It's all I'd want to play. I'd want to play piano and I want to do the songs in a completely different way. Mm. And I think that if we ever did it, that's probably what it would have to be. I wouldn't want to get up and play play those songs. And I think we played them the best in '92, uh, '93, yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the the last tour, was it? Yeah, no, well, the Ends with a Bang. Yeah, I think Ends with a Bang was the best, and yeah. I think that the 2006-2008 yeah. tour was really good too. Yeah, that was great. And I think that should be let it be at that. You know. Otherwise, I, you know what you're getting towards, which is starting to make me think it, it needs to happen, is I guess like the acoustic splends that would. Uh, would be the 50th anniversary. <laughs> well, I think so, the 40th is just about gone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it no, that's been and gone. So let's 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 work towards a 50th, 50th. anniversary. Yeah. Um, sp- acoustic split ends reunion. Yeah, and we'll play "I See Red" like Tim wrote it. Yeah, exactly. When my baby's walking down. <laughs> 